pretty we're weird. recording as soon as Kevin joined, so. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, you can edit the intro, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll edit the intro a little bit for you, Kevin. To another episode of FR Locked. Uh, this podcast is going to be a little bit different today. We have Kevin or Ultra Four Jones, and then uh, Derek Miller, known as D Mill with a welder. We're going to talk about some solid axle stuff today. Uh, there's been some, I don't want to say misinformation, but some not correct information going around on the internet. And these two have the most experience when it comes to racing cars with solid axles. Maybe not the most experience, but enough that matters. This is a good, good little disclaimer, I guess. There. I mean, I mean you know more than I do, so that's something, right? <laughs> well, and I, I think we, I mean, compared to a trail rig, I think we ask a whole lot more of our setups than most. A hundred percent. You know what I mean? Um, I think, I think you take something and you jump it and beat on it and beat it through the desert. You're going to find a weak link real fast. Yeah. So before we get too deep into uh, the actual bullet points that uh, Derek put together, and just so for everyone listening knows, uh, Derek put together a good list of talking points for this. And I'm really just here to facilitate the podcast uh, and give a platform for lack of better words. Um, So why don't you both introduce yourselves and then basically what your car is uh so people that don't know you guys god forbid uh that they have a little bit more understanding yeah derek you put this together why don't you go first all right so uh as as trevor introduced earlier my name's my name's derek i'm uh, on instagram email with a welder um it's kind of a dumb name but here we are um i built my first trail rig out of a Toyota Sequoia. And then after three years of that, decided to turn that into a race car. Uh, and I've done King of the Hammers a handful of times with it. And, uh, it's, it's kind of evolved in, um, it's been a process of, of learning through breaking stuff. Um, you know, some, some things are stronger than others and you, and you find the limits of a trail rig real fast when you try and turn it into a race car. So, um, yeah, not a, not a whole lot of people out there trying to race Toyota Sequoias or even make trail rigs out of them. So, it, it definitely stands out and it's heavy and it's big and you know, it's dumb and it works. And it's cool. Yeah. No, everything, uh, everything cool about it's not Toyota though. That's, that's the problem. true. <laughs> the LS, the one tons. Yeah. Yeah. The notoriety is Toyota. And that's, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is uh, Kevin Jones, AKA ultra four Jones on IG. Um, I've had a bunch of straight axles that have all broken, and I've had one IFS Toyota that I never broke. So <laughs> for some reason, that's made me a solid axle guy. Did you ever take the IFS Toyota off-road? I did, um, okay. <laughs> but apparently apparently not, not hard enough, right? Fair. Yeah. And I, and I mean, you, Trevor, you kind of sell yourself short that you're just here to facilitate, but I feel like... Um, as an IFS guy, as much as you want to stay hardcore IFS and they've made a bunch of advancements, anyone who spends enough time in the rocks ends up getting rid of the IFS. So I think, you know what I mean? So, so eventually you're going to, right? So I I think there's, there's probably some, uh, questions you may have as we get into this that are clarity or whatever for someone looking to make that jump. Yeah. hundred percent. I think that that's actually a really good point. There is a lot of people that listen to this that are, uh either ifs or have gone ifs to solid axle 
Um, and it could be a lot of information for those people that are looking to do that. So uh, I think I think for the interest of time, we'll we'll try and um, try and focus this episode more or less, or this conversation we're having today on on uh, one ton Dana sixty front axle stuff. Um, I think it's it's a massive rabbit hole of different directions to take a conversation, and um, I just you know unless you want to have an eight hour episode, I, I think we're we're going to focus more on the front axle stuff today, um, kind of some of the pros and cons of your junkyard options. Um, and I say junkyard, I mean, yeah, you buy them from Craigslist or whatever, but it still came out of, it started life under something else, right? So that's why it's a junkyard option. Uh, and then maybe near the end, we'll talk about some of the fancy race car stuff that uh, Kevin's getting to play with now and, and see up close and, um, you know, something something the rest of us with race cars aspire to end up with, uh, with these fancy fabricated housings and, and uh, big custom gear sets. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, following along, um, you know, the big ones are for Toyota guys, a lot of the early Toyotas are going to be uh, passenger side drop, uh, meaning your, your front output on your T case is going to be on the passenger side of the car. Without switching that, you're, or building a custom axle, you're super limited. You're basically going to do a, a Chevy or an early Dodge uh, Dana 60. Um, biggest issue with both of those are going to be that they're low pinion. Um, not a huge issue, uh, strength wise, because, a, a a true, a low pinion designed to be that way, uh, is going to run on the proper side of the gear. Um, where you hear a lot of terms, a lot of times the term reverse rotation pinion or ring and pinion gears for a high pinion, like what a Ford would have. It's not actually reverse rotation, but it is designed to run on the other side of the center line of the axle. So you're not pushing on the wrong side of the ring gear. Um, that's, that's where you kind of run into, and, and we'll get into that, but that's where you create a weakness. Um, so yep. With, with the low pinions, your, your biggest con on a low pinion is going to be the fact that, that it is low, meaning that the, uh, yoke or the U joint is below the axle center line. So, you know, you're going to be closer to the rocks. You're going to be more likely to maybe smoke a front drive line. Um, you're going to lose some of the down travel compared to a high pinion because your driveline is now, you know, three or four inches lower in that range to where you're even further away from the center line of the car, the center line of your, of your uh, transfer case. So um, ideally a Chevy axle, even though it means you don't have to change your transfer case in your, in your Toyotas that are, or, or early Jeeps or whatever that are passenger drop, you're really going to go after it. Um, man, I'd really say either figure out a way to do a transfer case that becomes a driver's side output or or find a Ford housing that was a high pinion that somebody made custom. So it's now a, a passenger side axle. Was there any, Derek, to your knowledge, is there any passenger side high pinion stuff? Like I, Not that I've been able to find. I think Ford... Um, I think Ford's pretty much the only high pinion stuff. I think some of the newer Dodges, um, probably like second gen diesels, maybe um, they started going. And I don't know that they're high pinion, but I know they are driver drop. Um, but I that's those Dodge axles don't seem to get used a whole lot, so I really don't know a whole lot about them. Yeah, you I was know just why curious. Those... If, Go ahead, Kevin. If guys wanted to stay passenger drop, I was just curious if, if there's anything out there that is high pinion, like a factory app, you know, OEM fitment 
that they could they could go hunt for i mean i i can't think of any but that's not to say it doesn't exist just curious if you knew of any yeah no not not off the top of my head i mean i think i think if someone really really had their heart set on going high pinion and staying passenger drop then you're going to go make friends with you know you're going to buy a bunch of beer if you're one of your, one of your buddies that's uh capable of of basically retubing or cutting yep. and modifying the tubes on that axle to get it swapped around to be that way right. yeah i've seen guys do that it just i don't know it's just <laughs> anybody that's cut a tube out of an axle like it's just a crazy annoying amount of work sometimes to take c's off and pull tubes and it just doesn't i, I would avoid it at any cost personally but maybe i'm just lazy yeah, yeah I, I don't disagree with that i think um unless i was doing something and even then i mean i think and we'll get into it even with fabricated housings i don't think i would retube one you know when you buy a blank housing it comes with the tubes long enough that you can pick what side you want and you're simply cutting them off Yep. Just trying to line those tubes up and get it right. I mean, that's that's a can of worms that if you're only doing one axle, probably isn't worth your time to figure out. Yeah, I agree. Do you know why guys don't use the newer Dodge axles more? I so they do the center axle disconnect, and there's there's a carryover there, and I'm not sure what years have it and what years don't. But essentially, your long side axle tube has a has a disconnect in it. Oh, so, and that's how they get their mileage back and not constantly spinning the pinion because Dodges um any of that newer dodge stuff they do not have selectable hubs in them right okay so it's like your toyota where it's just always splined into your shafts 100 percent of the time um so you just end up with a bunch of parasitic loss so dodge and, and the new uh the jls are that way and i think some of the the jk's weren't but i think the previous model year jeeps were with that axle disconnect and it was just a way to allow a little bit of free spin in the in the wheels and get gas mileage back which you're driving a one-ton truck you're probably not that concerned about it yeah right um so then moving on um and now that, that would have been a kingpin 60 with that chevy um i don't believe chevy did a ball joint 60 because i think by the time that ball joint technology came around chevy had already switched all their trucks over to ifs so so pretty much chevy chevy 60s are always going to be a kingpin style Um, and then guys will mix and match and they'll take those Chevy, the Chevy outers and put them on the Ford because they are a little bit stronger. Um, it has to do with, um, the spindle being the number of bolts that hold the spindle, which ultimately becomes your, your, uh, your weight load carrying surface with, for the bearings. Um, yeah, that's what, that's what the old race car had was Chevy spindles. Yep. Chevy spindles on a, on a Ford super duty spacing ball joint deal, kind of a, kind of a weird thing they did but they chose the best i think of all worlds to make right to make that work um, what uh ish years would those axles be coming out of oh god um like ballpark obviously we don't need to be yeah i think i'm trying to think you know your your square body chevys i think were a mix of ifs and solid axle but i could be completely wrong i'm not I a chevy that guy sounds right you know so what's that get you into the 70s maybe mid 70s yeah i think on the one ton stuff they went ifs uh like yeah i think it was on the one ton stuff i think it was early 90s uh they went ifs because i had an 88 that was still solid axle front okay. so i would imagine yeah late seven or 70s to mid 80s yeah mid 80s so 
um, which is good. I mean, there's going to be a lot of those trucks in the junkyard and they're not a sought after axle. So they're going to be affordable. You know, they're not going to pull a premium that, you know, like an 05 Super Duty is going to because it's it's less desirable. Um, oh, we just lost Kevin. Kevin's gone. For it's all right. He'll be back. Should, should we log in? Should we log into his, his Instagram update? <laughs> um, so, yeah. And then, and then the Fords, you know, the Ford Kingpin, the Snowfighter Axle, that's like old school pirate rock crawling gold, you know? And I, and that was, yeah, that was the sought after axle that was like seen as like the pinnacle of like what to, to build your rig with um, in the day when you just, you only had factory options, right? You didn't have all this aftermarket stuff that you could just go buy. So um, that's going to be, and again, that's somewhere in the eighties, I think um, when they made that changeover away from the Kingpin, but so yeah, your Ford Kingpin Dana sixties, um, they're going to be three fifties and up, which is why they, you know, that term one ton came from the two fifties used a uh, eight lug, Dana 44. So again, it's even more limited because it was only the F-350 trucks that had them. Uh, those are going to be driver side drop, uh, a kingpin style axle, and something um, across the board on all those kingpins is that they're not going to be a 35 spline axle shaft. You know, that technology or the the need for that amount of strength just wasn't there back in the day because the trucks didn't have massive amounts of horsepower and torque like new diesels do and they didn't have the gvw you know weight capacities like new diesels do so all this stuff for the time was the strongest you can get but i think they're only like 32 spline or something you know they're not they're not big 35 spline axles um so yeah and those the biggest downside of those ford kingpins is they still kind of they still bring a premium so when you're looking for axles you're going to end up spending a little bit more if you have your heart set on that ford kingpin um, just because everyone knows it, you know, all the old timers know that's the axle to have. And usually it's right. the old timer that's parting that truck out. So he's going to want a bunch of money. those are convertible to 35 spline if you do a different carrier and stuff. Um, yeah. So you would order your carrier and I'm pretty sure inner and outer. Uh, and then I think, I think there's some work you have to do to the spindle in order to get the bigger okay. shaft in it. Um, and I don't know. And again, because I haven't built one of those, I don't know if you have to drill that out or if that's in the rear axle, but there's some modifications you have to do to get that 35 spline and shaft. And what are, do you know, you joint options for the front of those? So, so pretty much everything, right? The Chevys, the Fords, all the way up until the, basically even the early Super Duties, 99 to 04s, you're pretty much limited to a 1480 U-joint, okay. um, which, is, which is standard. I mean, that's a standard size, you know, one ton U-joint that everyone's used to. Um, it wasn't until like 2008 or 2009 that we started seeing the 1550 uh, U-joints come out in like the F450s and 550s. Right. Um, and then that became a standard option on Super Duty. So, and then that's post-dated. So like if you go to Summit and you order a set of axle shafts, stock Dana replacement shafts um, for an 05 plus Super Duty axle, they come with 1550 joints in it. Okay. Yeah, so it's like an off-the-shelf stock item that has that big, massive joint, and that'll and then that's what get that's what gets you like forty-four degrees of steering right. or some like this ridiculous amount. And those will fit in any of the O five plus one-ton C's. Yep. Okay. Yep. So all the all the O five plus uh, one-ton C's are all bigger, okay. uh, massively bigger, and and then they change the orientation. So like on all this kingpin stuff, the inner C. So if you're looking at it from the front of the axle, from the front of the car. 
your inner C is is both top and bottom inside of the knuckle. So the knuckle goes over and under that inner C. Oh, got it. Where on the O5 stuff, it's the outer knuckle goes under the bottom and under the top. Oh, got it. Okay. So, so they're stacked on each other. So it gives right. you a little bit more clearance. Okay. Um, along with being a bigger spread. Right. Um, that bigger spread adds to the the weight distribution and all the GB and all the engineering into it just makes it stronger. But that's kind of why they did that. Um, but, you know, and then you get in and even with the older, all that older Kingpin stuff, because it has been so long since it's been in production, brake pads are going to be harder to find at like O'Reilly's. You're not going to be able to go get, oh, I need the lower bearing for it. O'Reilly's probably isn't going to have it. You can order it from, you know, um, like Yukon Gear, whoever has, you know, um, East Coast Gear Supply. They all have the rebuild kits, but it's not like going down and picking up a set of ball joints from, you know, Napa. Like you're going to have to order something because they just don't stock those because they're just not current. You know, so if you're if you're someone that likes to drive around or put a bunch of miles on your rig, you may consider using a more modern axle because if you're out on a road trip and you need a part, you're going to be able to get that super easy. I mean, damn near from a Ford dealer, right? right? If you had to, you know, versus if you need Kingpin stuff, a Ford dealer hasn't carried that in 20 years. Like the people that are listening, obviously it's, I don't want to say hard to describe the difference between a Kingpin and a ball joint, but before we get too far into the ball, the ball joint stuff, do you just want to go over just a, 30,000 yeah. foot view of the ver- the difference between a kingpin and a ball joint. Sure, sure. So anyone that anyone that's listening that has an IFS rig, um you've got ball joints, right? That's that's your pivot point that your that your um tires basically steer on, right? So so those ball joints uh on an IFS car have um you know, 360 degrees of deflection meaning as the suspension goes up and down that connection point follows that travel as well as when you turn the tires, it allows the pivot. So in a, in a solid axle application, the only thing it's doing is allowing pivot. Now, the reason they do that is because it's faster and cheaper to assemble from the factory. And then from a maintenance standpoint, you're not going to touch those ball joints in a solid axle truck, you know, for the most part, unless you're running, you know, super crazy offset tires, like a lot of these bro dozers have your ball joints are going to last you 60,000, 70,000 miles. You're not doing that with a old school kingpin axle. So the way the kingpin axles work, um, on the bottom side of, of the knuckle, you have a tapered roller bearing, right? Like you would like a wheel bearing or anything else. And then on the top side, you have, uh, essentially a steel cone with a, um, uh, so it's a steel tapered cone that sticks up from the inner knuckle. And then you have like a, a sacrificial brass or um, olite bronze uh, bushing that has the same taper that rides on top of that. And you basically have to keep that uh, tapered roller bearing and that whole setup under tension. Um, So from the factory, a factory setup is going to use a spring, meaning it's not adjustable, right? You have a spring, you put the cap on, you bolt it down, it's done. When you get into wheeling and off-roading, those springs really, they're, they're meant to go drive down the road. So, so they, they, they lack the ability to adjust that tension and keep it tight. So a lot of, uh, aftermarket high steer arms from Artec or whoever replace that top cap where the spring used to go and give you like a, a set screw or a jam, a jam nut and a set screw 
So you can you can uh, basically tension that that bearing and that pivot setup. Uh, the problem with that is the last couple rigs that my buddies had that had those every third trip when I saw the rig in my shop, I had to retension it. Yeah, they didn't sense. hold tension. They became just the crazy amount of wear. And it's fine as long as you stay up on it, but you just have to know it. Where a ball joint is going to be, you can't adjust it. So once it's loose, you have to replace it. But the reality is you're not going to have to replace it in a standard trail rig for a long time. And you know, do you so think it's that, has to, that has to do with the, like, oil light isn't very impact resistant in the sense, like, if you're really side loading, like, if if you, you know, bump and smack the your bead of your wheel into a rock or something like that, you're really starting to add a ton of pressure into those oil light bearings. So you'll probably start to like out around them. Uh, yep. Yeah, you're exactly, you're going to, you're, you know, you have the tapered roller bearing on the bottom, so it's really not going to compress or go anywhere. So as you articulate up on a rock or whatever, you're basically trying to shove camber into your wheel set and it's going right. to push against either that oil light bronze, or I know, I think there's some companies doing it out of like Delrin and right. stuff. I mean, uh, but it, yeah, either way, you start getting those side load forces on it. And I mean, it's going to hurt a ball joint just the same. Um, I just think the ball joint's going to last a little bit longer um, in terms of, of just, I mean, the engineering alone. I mean, all those ball joint axles were were under trucks that had such a heavier GVW that, you know, the these manufacturers have to now uh, warranty. I think there's a lot more R&D and, and development into them. Makes sense. And with you know, the 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 kingpin stuff too those are ungreasable versus ball joints are greasable so typically maintenance and stuff is a lot i don't want to say more carefree than a uh kingpin but it is yeah i and i think i think um i could be wrong but um i think depending on whose high steer arm you use um i think they have some grease irks in them and i know the bottom caps where that tapered roller bearing is i think also have grease irks okay but again, it's on the just like a ball joint axle, a grease circ on the bottom of the knuckle is going to get snapped off. Yeah, right. So you're going to grease it one time, and then it'll never get greased again. But yep. I would argue that ball joint is going to be sealed from the elements a whole lot better. So if you're right. in the snow, you're doing water crossings. Um, I think those kingpins are just going to get the grease washed out of them pretty routinely. You know. So yeah, and then and then and then again, I mean, even then, it's still old tech, right? So it's just, it's only going to be so good. And then um, the ball joint Dana 60 stuff. And again, I don't think there, you could probably buy one of these axles for a couple hundred bucks because nobody wants them. But if you can find the 90s Ford OBS uh, F350s came with a ball joint Dana 60. Um, and it's, it's a short window, I think, of when they were available before the Super Duties came out. Um, but they're eight on six and a half. So if you're going to run a 14 bolt rear from the factory, that thing's going to match bolt pattern. Um, they're going to be cheap. They're going to have all the kind of same downfalls as the Kingpins did with the older brake technology, not 35 spline axles, but you're getting, I think bang for the buck. If those axles are probably the best bet just cause they are cheaper. Right. Um, they do have the same, uh, spread on the ball joints is like a 99 to 04 super duty so if you really wanted a unibearing outer um or wanted i don't think anyone makes an aftermarket outer for the 99 to 04 just because it is only a five-year window that they made that axle so i don't i don't think you can get like reads for it um 
but you could definitely upgrade that. Um, the biggest issue with those that I've found, because like I said, my daughter's truck has that axle under it. Um, there's really only one option for high steer and I have to send the knuckles off and have a machine. And that is that bus and knuckle stuff. No, that's skies. Oh, okay. Yeah. So skies being big in the OBS world, they've got all that stuff for that axle, but, um, it's just, are, you know, are those low pinion or high pinion? Those are high pinion Ford, uh, Ford sixties were always high pinion. Okay. Yep. So pretty much any, if someone tells you it's a Ford 60 and it's not a high pinion, they're lying to you. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, I, and I, and I preface that by saying the front, right. um, obviously Ford vans came with a rear 60 that was a low pinion, but we're not talking about rears. Yep. Um, so yeah, so that's real brief. Those had selectable hubs on those. Um, so you can run like an upgraded hub or a drive slug. Um, they have a standard wheel bearing setup. So if someone's scared of a unit bearing type deal, um, they, uh, you know, you, you don't have to, you can run a traditional spindle and they're going to be eight on six and a half. So they'll match all your old, uh, 14 bolt stuff that that's common. And you ran traditional wheel bearings and, uh, unit bearings both. Yeah. Um, I, so like I said, my daughter's truck has traditional wheel bearings. Uh, my rig has always been a unit bearing, a unit bearing car. Pros and cons unit bearing versus traditional wheel bearing. I don't have to adjust preload once it's there, it's set, you know, it's kind of, it kind of goes back to that kingpin mentality of like, it's cool that you can adjust it, but that means you have to adjust it. Right. And you know? typic, and the only really downside to unit bearings is the cost, right? Correct. Yeah. The cost. But I mean, if you look at, um, if you look at the GVW of trucks today, F four fifties, F five fifties, they use the same size unit bearing. So like a 99, so like an 05 plus super duty axle physically uses the same size unit bearing as a F450, F550 does. The only difference being the F450, F550 is a 10 bolt unit bearing. So it has the, the wheel flange has 10 lug nuts on or 10 lug studs. Other than that, it's the same bearing. Makes sense. Just to give you an idea of how like strong that bearing is. I, yeah. I, and even back in, in the early 99 to 04, 450s and 550s, they also ran the same size. Even the two-wheel drives all ran that same size unit bearing as as the 250s and 350s did. They just had a bigger wheel oh, spread okay. on them, like a bigger bigger lug spread. Yeah. What's up, Kevin? How you doing? Good, man. Do you have yeah. a good update? I don't know. It's it's 10 minutes of chaos, I feel like. it's It's an evolving process. We'll so so we we kind of breezed through the ford kingpins right when you uh bailed out of here and went through the obs ball joints you've got a ford kingpin under your truck right no that's a ball joint 60 um, oh really i've owned a kingpin it was actually dana 44 high pinion in a, in a so you don't have high steer on the on chase no i did the okay. uh gm one ton tie rod ends that have a larger taper and i flipped the taper to the top so i just moved the the tie rod to the the top of the um okay. knuckle mount there so you get a couple inches but not the full not the full money gotcha so so when you're ready to bring that that big giant chase truck you have to the rubicon and we're gonna have to watch that steering yeah yeah i, I mean it, it's held up so far it you know, I I obviously don't drive that thing like like I drive the race car. Why not? I, think. I mean, I don't know. I'd I'd beg to differ. You drove it hard enough to crack a seven three block in this half. Yeah, was, was that before or after I broke the ring gear and the Sterling? I don't know. Yeah, now, what were you doing? 
also. He was being a drunken crew member, just like you're supposed to do at Hammer. Yeah, when you're not a racer, you take KOH a lot less seriously. And uh, I took it, I took that job very seriously in that I wasn't being serious. And somehow rolling back into camp at two in the morning, my, my truck had a hideous knocking sound and a hole in the diff cover. Standard. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, I mean, he went to Hammer's and he didn't have a race car to break. He had to break something. Which is funny because that's why I told my wife I needed a race car because I told her I kept driving my truck harder and harder and eventually I was going to break it. And then, Have you thought about putting a Tundra rear axle on that? <laughs> anyway, moving on. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking for There's some There's nothing wrong going. with the Tundra rear axle under a Tundra. In the rear. In the rear. Yeah. Okay. In a rear application as it was engineered to be. All right. So... Um, so you're a ball, yeah, it's the same ball drone axle than that that Macy's got under her her, yeah. her truck. Okay. Did you did you do like a pros and cons of ball joint versus kingpin or is that? Not- uh yeah, I mean we kind of touched on it. It is not as you know uh, cut and dry as this outline that makes no sense. Um, yeah. No, but yeah, we kind of talked about it a little bit. Just that you know with with ball joints with kingpins they're an older tech and you're going to have to maintenance them. And with yeah. the ball joints you're not going to have to maintenance them, but that means that once they're done, they're done. Right. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't see you getting 60,000 miles out of a set of kingpins without constantly, you know, especially in a rig where you're side loading it and rock crawling yeah. and beating on it. Right. Sure. So, but yeah. It, and then, um, kind of that, well, you, cause you, your trucks a two fifty or a three fifty. It's a two fifty. but sorry, the act, Axle came out of a 350. So right, so that's what we were talking about. Those OBS uh, ball joint axles have to be fairly inexpensive, right? Did, do you remember what you paid for it? Uh, I've oddly enough, I bought three of them over the years um, and just kind of pedaled them around and whatever. But I think the cheapest one I actually got was 800 bucks. And oh wow, I think most, yeah, I think the most I paid was 1200, but it came with like everything spring one ton springs and all the steering parts and all that stuff so they're they're not cheap honestly because that 250 community it's highly sought after to this was before anybody even thought of swap well i was gonna say that i'm completely wrong because i just spent three or four minutes talking about how they've got to be cheaper because nobody wants them they probably should be cheaper but guys that want (laughs) to go from a leaf spring ttb dana 50 to a leaf spring dana 60 it's easy to do so they they pay whatever the guy selling it wants they pay for, for convenience on that. they yeah. pay for yeah to be able to just bolt it in but then you got like my you know my bad approach of buying paying that money for that leaf spring axle and then taking a grinder to it cutting all the leaf spring out of the casting so right oh yeah because you're you're coil over in the front yeah We'll have another podcast about how Lee Springs are stupid. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> did that. didn't we do that one already? No, not yet. We'll get there. All right. Um, Next, on the episode. Next episode. <laughs> yeah. We we did briefly touch on it with the other Toyota guys yeah. that uh, Lee Springs are dumb. Um, I believe Lee Springs are for poor people, but I, that, I believe that is the. The funny thing is, if you're going to cut off your IFS. Sorry, we're gonna we're gonna detour here a little bit because okay. this was another one of those. I was listening to somebody else and went, "Okay, let me do the math." It's literally lease springs are only cheaper if you're gonna use a cheap, 
like monotube rough country shock, right? Yeah. If you're going to use yep. a good ADS or a King or whatever, a good tunable shock with your leaf spring setup, you're going to be within about 500 bucks of just doing a link suspension. Right. By the time you're done. Yep. Yeah. It, so it, yeah. anyone well, listening, save your pennies for another like couple months and just link it. Stop Let's leaf springing the front of things. I, I can be convinced that leafs in the rear are okay. Like I'm not opposed to that, but stop putting leaf springs in the front of stuff. We'll see, and then and then leaf springs in a Tacoma makes sense because it started with leaf springs. Leaf springs in an FJ don't make sense because it started with links. And Why there would you go back? There is also a third or fourth gen forerunner with leafs front and rear. It's mm-hmm. all that work. All that work. All right. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So then, so then that brings us to like the ninety nine to 04 Super Duty, which. It's going to be a little bit cheaper than the 05 plus it's set up for lease springs. So if you do want to run lease springs, you already have at least one pad cast into the housing. Um, it's probably going to throw your center off though, because it's going to be the widths probably aren't going to work for you. But if you are going to try and link something using one of those axles, you don't have a massive amount of casting to cut off because it's, it, it was a lease spring, you know, rig to begin with. Um, those are a unit bearing axle. You're limited to a 1480 U joint. Um, and that's just in the knuckle spread uh, or the spread of the C. Um, if you want to run, so those are a 35 spline inner shaft. So your differential and all that's all 35 spline. But to get 35 spline outers, uh, I believe there's some machining that needs to be done to open up uh, the unit bearing uh, passage in the center to get the bigger shaft through it. Um, that's not something I've done. I had a buddy that used one of those on a fourth gen forerunner and um, was basically like, yeah, we had to have the, the the bearings machine for it. And I'm sure at this point there's places you can order those bearings from that are machined. Um, the advantage with the 99 to 04 axle, that unit bearing is going to be the same, the basis of the same unit bearing that a lot of like spider tracks and trail gear and, and all these other uh, aftermarket knuckle companies, they use that and then modify them. So Kevin's car, the new axles he has under that, the, the unit bearings in it are actually the same. They start out life as a, basically a Timken 99 to 04 unit bearing. And then they'll do some internal modifications. I think they've got like a chromo spindle and a different wheel mounting surface, but the advantage to that is if you wanted to keep a Toyota six lug, you could because you can find that that wheel mounting surface in a six lug for that that unit bearing. Yeah, I think you can buy those direct from Trail Gear or direct from Spider Tracks. On... Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, Trail Gear, Spider Tracks, I think Curry makes them now. Yeah. Uh, my wife's my wife's uh, stock class Jeep has Curry axles in it and it uses that that unit bearing setup with a five lug, like a Jeep okay. five lug pattern on it. So um that's kind of the advantage with the 99 to 04 uh knuckle spread is is with that custom unit bearing you'll be able to run pretty much any wheel bolt pattern you can think of without an adapter yep um the downside of those 99 04s um again you're still limited to a 1480 u joint and there's no read option i don't think anyone's really making an aftermarket knuckle option um, I know like Kevin, we talked about your Dynatrack axle that you used to have in the race car is based on that spread, but Dynatrack doesn't want to sell you just the knuckles, right? right. They want to sell you a whole axle. 
or they want to sell you replacement knuckles for the axle you already have. So trying to find uh, an upgraded knuckle, which I'm not sure you're going to need because those, I mean, like I said, they came under 250s to 550s. So I don't, I don't know that you're going to break those, but. What is the benefit to a reed knuckle versus running a factory knuckle? So, so with reed knuckles, um, and that's something we, 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 I glazed over, um, reed knuckles really became big with those ball joint or the, sorry, the kingpin Ford axles. Um, the reason being those, those knuckles on a kingpin Ford or Chevy, um, they're fairly thin. So once you start running a high steer arm on it, they actually crack. So you'll be wheeling along and all of a sudden the top of your knuckle will rip off and <laughs> they're, you know, now you're, now you're driving home on a, on a tree branch, you know what I mean? Right. Like it's just not going to work. Um, so, so Reed started making, um, and I don't think they're, I don't think they're cast here. I think their mine final machining is done in the States. So I think they're still cast overseas or forged. Uh, but they basically just use, uh, when comparing it to a factory product, they're using, um, a better process, uh, a thicker, thicker castings, thicker webbings. They're just a, a little bit better product. And then they're designed to be high steer. So they've increased, um, the top of the knuckle where that high steer arm is going to bolt. They've, they've made it thicker. They've machined it flat. So basically all you're doing is taking it out of the box, bolting a high steer arm onto it and putting it on your rig. You know, you're not having to go and have it machined or anything funny. Makes sense. I know there's not to try to derail this. I know there's some, I don't want to say controversy, but opinions on weld-on high-steer arms versus bolt-on high-steer arms. And I've seen a lot of weld-on high-steer arms rip off, and I've never seen a bolt-on one rip off. So I've had both. Um, I had weld-on high... I had the Artec-style weld-on high-steer on my 05 factory knuckles when I first put the car together. Um, for a trail rig, I had no problems. The second I tried to race it at hammers, I hit one one whoop in the desert a little crossed up and it was hard it was not a little whoop it i hit hard and when i got back to camp or back to the garage or whatever i was looking the car over and yeah i did i ripped the high steer the weld on high steer off now the advantage is it indexes into the factory um factory steering uh ball joint location uh the factory steering arm so even if that weld does fail you still have this big giant bolt, seven eighths bolt holding everything together to at least catch it, right? It's not an immediate catastrophic failure. If I didn't catch it and I kept trying to bomb through the desert, I probably would have broke something else. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, I think for an average trail rig, there's nothing wrong with the weld on if they're done right. Right. So, um, but again, that goes back to, I had those and the way I've been doing it is every time I break something trying to race, whatever that was that broke, I try and upgrade that scenario, right? Because how do I know? So I broke that the first year. So then this year I ran the busted knuckle setup, which essentially they take and they machine the top of a factory 05 knuckle. And when they machine it, they leave. Um, they man. leave. What's that? Well, so it's the opposite, right? So they don't machine a groove in the top yeah, of it. Yeah, they leave, they leave a ridge. Yeah, they, box, they leave yeah. the key in the top of it, and then their their bolt on arm is I want to say seven bolts, and it interfaces with that key that they machined into it. So I haven't had any problems with that, and I've I've been pretty unnice to my car. Um, 
So I, I think it's a, 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 a solid setup. If you're going to run an 05 plus and you don't want to go through the expense of buying reeds, because even once you buy a reed knuckle for it, then I still have to go buy the, the arm for it. And the arms aren't cheap and reed doesn't sell the arms. So you got to buy that from whoever. Right. Um, so, you know, buying that from busted knuckle and they have the knuckles on the shelf. So you can send your knuckles to them and they'll machine it. They can take a set off the shelf. They're already machined and mail them to you. Or you can send your knuckles for a, basically a core charge. Makes so sense. it's kind of some options, but um, I think that's probably the way to do it. If someone was really concerned or maybe someone's they're good at bolting stuff together, but a little concerned with welding on high stir arms. I, yeah, I right. think that busted I fit, I fit into that category. Derek, Derek obviously has no trepidation about welding, you know, things onto cast steel, but no. it still creeps me out. I, I don't, I haven't had the best success with welding on cast steel. So, uh, you know, the last race car had bolt-on high steer. Um, the new one actually has bolt-on high steer, the spider tracks. So I, I personally, I'm a, I'm a much bigger fan of, of a, a keyway and, and five or six pretty gnarly bolts. Especially, yeah, I, if you could put, especially if you could put the actual, like, tie rod bolt hole in double shear with some yeah. sort of factory, you know, location. I, I think the, the bolt-on <clears throat> high steer just from the... I don't say manufacturing standpoint of it, but when you, the section that you're welding on has so much leverage against it. When you start getting right. all of the bolt holes past the backside of the act or past the backside of the ball joint and stuff, you, there's so much more, uh, leverage. And then you put the keyway on there as well. Like twisting that off is going to be like yeah. your bolts would have to be loose. Like, right. right. And I think that's off. what gets a lot of guys. And, and that's why they bolt on high steer arms, get a bad rap is because guys, are horrible about maintenance on their right, rigs right. and whether it's cone washers or whatever you've got holding your high steer on if if you don't at least even check that stuff like it's it's shame on you you know that's not that's not the bolt-on high steers fault you know that it's it wants to come loose so if you're not working on it and checking it and you know you can't you can't blame that entirely no absolutely Right. And then especially when you consider like in the Toyota world, the heister arms bolt on to something that was never designed to be a stress point of that knuckle. Same thing with the kingpins, right? It bolts onto where the top cap used to go. It was never designed from the factory to have steering forces at the top of that pivot point. It was meant to be mid midway. And, you know, so that also adds to blowing mm -hmm. out, blowing out those joints a lot faster. Here's a, here's a tiny little tangent. Uh, that stupid sidekick I have has the samurai front axle in it and it's got somebody's aftermarket high steer arms on it. They bolt to the caliper mounting ears <laughs> on the samurai axle, <laughs> two bolts hold the high steer arm and it's, they're utilizing the factory location for a brake caliper to do it. It's, like it's the creepiest thing to me. Like when you I, rip those, uh, that high steer arm off your caliper is going with it and then you yeah, can you also have not no only brakes. not only can you not steer but now you can't you cannot stop, stop. So <laughs> instead of just like you know maybe getting hurt i think it maybe it's just like a guaranteed death or something yeah I don't that know. makes sense it, it must well, be common the in the suzuki world but to me it's like it's wild the good news with the samurai the axle is probably going to snap in half before you break the heister off right you don't and, have big tires you don't have a hydro make enough ramp. horsepower to Gain, gain any speed at all so right, right. what steering yeah, what, box is in it you're gonna crash at what like 15 miles an hour so right yeah what steering box does it use 
Uh, this one is actually using the factory sidekick slash tracker power steering box, I think. So you don't have enough in steering input to even hurt anything. No, the frame actually, off the frame first. Yeah, the quote yeah. frame flexes <laughs> yeah. more than anything else, but at least you have a frame. That's true. You could have a shit box with no frame. Yeah, it could, could, could be XJ, XJ territory. Right? All right, moving on. Sorry. Well, so I guess that bring. I think we're making record time. I feel like we are. Uh, that brings us to the 05 Super Duty. Um, it's probably the most expensive front axle you're going to find that's that's junkyard style. Um, and you're going to spend the most amount of work trying to link it if you don't just use someone's radius arm kit that uses the factory kind of like pivot points. Um, I think the last couple I've cut up, I figured it you're right about six hours of labor trying to cut all the cast off of it. So That's if you've the, done it before. Yeah. So those listening, the way the way those axles are, um, they use a radius arm in the truck, which means you've got um, two points of connection on each left and right side of the axle. And on the on the left side of the axle, those big giant points of connection for the suspension are cast into the housing. And if you want to try and link this or truss it or do anything, you essentially have to cut all that off the housing. And then you also take two inches out of the housing, I guess, what, what would be the flange that comes over the axle tube on that side. Mm -hmm. um, because if you don't cut that two inches back, you don't have enough room, like you don't have enough axle tube to put a link mount on or to put a spring perch on if you were going to try. And, I don't know why anyone would, but to put a, you know, a spring perch on if you were going to try and do that. Um, now, the advantage to this is is once you've gone through all that, you've got like it's like a three and three quarter inch tube. It's three, three eighths thick. Maybe it's crazy thick. Like don't get me wrong. The axles weigh an absolute crap ton. Um, but I don't think you're ever going to hurt the axle. You know, I think you're more likely to hurt yourself or the rest of the car, um, yeah. before you really hurt that axle. Um, with those, your factory 35 spline inner and outer, mm -hmm. You've got giant brakes. You can still clear a 17 inch wheel on a factory brake setup on one of those. So that's kind of your, the industry standard has gone to a 17 inch wheel for beadlocks. So that's good. There's a lot of options now for the eight on 170, which is the factory bolt pattern, which there didn't used to be. And there's quite a few now, pretty much everyone's got one. Um, you can run a 1550 U joint in them. A lot of them came factory with 1550. I want to say like 0708 is when they saw that changeover. You can get reed knuckles for it. If you just, want the ultimate and strength um and then i mean our tech makes swap kits truss kits uh ballistic fab does a shave kit for it so you can actually cut like an inch out of the bottom of the housing and get a little bit more ground clearance out of it um rough stuff makes a killer front cover and what's unique about the 0560 um front covers that rough stuff makes compared to a regular 60 is they're super low profile so your tie rod in the factory location will still clear because the tie rod is so much closer to that axle center line to take advantage of that bigger u-joint you can get like 44 45 degrees of steering i want to say something it's i don't know exactly but it's a lot and it's a lot more than than some of the other dana 60 axles from back in the day so and then and in terms of cons i mean like i said you have to it's going to take you a bunch of time to cut that up and then they're going to be expensive i think anywhere from 900 to 1200 bucks and as of late, I've seen them being sold from the scrap yards with no brakes on them because they'll have they'll have uh, 
recyclers come in and buy all the brake calipers off of every axle in the yard, which means when you go to buy your axle, it now does not brake calipers. Well, those brake calipers aren't cheap. So if you can try and find one with brake calipers, it's it's even if they're junk, it's worth it because when you go to buy new ones, you'll need to turn those in as cores. So just something to consider. Yeah, I think that, you know, all that cast in radius arm mount stuff. I mean, that's why like you and I have had conversations about if that's the axle I end up putting under our WJ or whatever, like I just want to use all that. Like I don't even want to spend six hours cutting it off. Like you build a long enough radius arm, like, and I'm not trying to start that debate, but I mean, man, you get a big axle, one ton strength, long arms, coilovers, go party. Yeah, I mean, you look at guys like WFO, man, they they have that kit, and obviously they developed that kit to be able to put that axle under these modern Durham axes, you know, to make them the way Chevy should have. And so they use, because they have that kit, they use that kit on Tacomas and, and everything, and, and there's really nothing wrong with a radius arm kit or trying to, and I've seen guys trying to do four links off of those those deals, and it's they're kind of an odd mounting width and i think rough stuff actually sells uh, a diy bracket for it now because it's an odd width it's not it's not a standard mounting width and it's not a standard bolt diameter like it's it's yeah. unique to that axle um so if somebody did want to go that route they can buy all that stuff from rough stuff i think if they want yeah, to go rough stuff they've they've jumped on that super duty axle bandwagon for sure which i mean that's personally you know selfishly part of my decision too yeah. And I mean, in terms of like people want to, you know, kind of, kind of shit on, um, these ball joint axles or, or these unit bearings. And I mean, that's the axle I have. And, um, I wheeled on forties Rubicon Ford ice multiple times a year for three years on that, on unit bearings and then turned it into a race car. And I still have the same unit bearings in it. Um, I've gone through the desert loop and hammers twice. I've gone through, a lot of the rock trails at hammers um i've raced short course i've jumped it um and i've really beat on it and my unit bearings are fine uh, my lower ball joints are fine pounds? what's that it's what 6400 pounds um yeah uh, i think once you add humans and fuel it's probably 68 68 69 something like that i think the first year at hammers um i was 6900 with no people in it yeah that was well over seven grand you know, yep. once we had, once we were in it. Yeah, that's, that's a toad. <laughs> well, it's with the Toyota 4.7, it was an absolute turd. Yeah. With a Turbo LS, it actually gets out of its way. Now. Oh, yeah, 100%. And Kevin, What's what do you that? think your new car is going to weigh? Uh, I want it to pass tech under 4,400. I mean, there you go, 4,400 pounds. That's the goal. So uh, I'm shooting for, a lot less than that, which means I'll probably miss the bar and maybe pull off, you know, forty three ninety nine or something like that. But well, you just got to be like everyone else and start pulling like axle shafts out. Oh and man! Fluid and... Oh, you just got to build it light. Build it light. Pay attention. I mean, to think of what a front diff weighs. Can we just pull the carrier out and you just roll in with a hollow tube? Yeah, I know. Well, I I remember checking out the tube works nine inches at Off Road Expo a year ago and. They have a cast iron one for you to pick up right next to their billet aluminum one, and it's insane. I don't, I don't know the exact poundage savings, but oh man, you go, you go billet I think aluminum. It's like forty five pounds. It's yeah, just the carrier. Yeah, yeah, it's significant. Yeah. Well, so let me ask you this: so you, 
So with your new car, you've got um, spider tracks housings under it. Yep. Right. With spider tracks outers. And are those chroma or are those steel? They're chroma with the pro series knuckles. Okay. But and they're what's the... so now they currently, they currently sell a four inch pro series chromo minor three and a half. Okay. So you've, okay. So you've got the earlier model. They're earlier for sure. Okay. Which so with that, more like the only that reason at all I have them is because they're older. But. So with that axle, when you were moving underground in the garage, once you pulled the carrier out of it, um, could you pick it up? Uh, I am five nine one sixty, and uh, I could pick up either axle just picking it up and walk around with it. Okay, so I'm two foot two thirty, and I'm not <laughs> two foot. You're not two foot. Six foot. Six foot. <laughs> Six foot, six foot, two thirty. That's a I short, am, stout little guy there. Yeah, dude, all, all the width. Uh, two foot the other direction. Right, right, right. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not what you'd call uh, round or out of shape. You're not too smart. far out of shape. I cannot pick up an 0560 axle with the carrier out of it. I don't no. know anyone that can. If I took the, I took the knuckles off, so it's stripped down. I can't. You can't take any more off of it, and I can't pick the axle housing up. Yeah, I think. What no, are I they was... eight? 900 pounds with brakes on them oh they got to be more than that i would think i kept moving the uh the spider tracks outside to do the cutting and grinding on it and stuff and um yeah by the time it was done it was the housing with knuckles i think i left unit bearings on it but no diffs no shafts um and i'd cut all the kind of truss work off and stuff and i could i could i mean don't get me wrong i had to get good technique and like you know body mechanics but I, I could deadlift it and then carry it back into the garage so yeah but yeah. you're lifting it by yourself that's like yeah for, i'm I using a cherry picker to move it around my garage i like we, i can't yeah when we moved my buddy's uh 05 plus super duty front around with brakes on it we slid it like oh yeah there was no yep. lifting it <laughs> yeah no that's it and if you do enough of them you just end up with a cart with casters yeah so yeah. Kevin, tell us about your new axles because that's we've gone through all the junkyard options, right? And okay. I'm sure so now we're on will, to now we're on to someone. Someone will chime in on the internet and tell us we're dumb and wrong, and it's not us; it's me because I've talked the most, yeah, that's um, and that's fine. But let's talk about fabricated housings now. Let's talk Kevin about Ax what's that? Kevin acts like I was gonna say Kevin acts like his new axles are junkyard axles. He's like they're the they're the three and a half inch Spider Track <laughs> Pro Series axle. Yeah. <laughs> to well, be fair, they are used race car parts. Yeah, they're they used race car yeah. parts. It doesn't get more beat up than that. That's yeah, true. That's yeah, yeah. Used race car parts live a hard life. Um, I'm not honestly sure when they were new. But uh, whose car know, did I they come off of? Uh, Levi Shirley's Legends car, his 4800 okay. car. He upgraded current, them. The current one he's selling, or the one before? Yes, that? no, the one he's selling. These axles came out of uh, what does he call that car? He calls it Loretta. Loretta. No, that's the big one. This is Layla. 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 Okay. So okay. these came out of Layla in 2019. Sounds yeah. wrong when you phrase it. Rephrase that. That didn't sound right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when would you say these were put into Layla? Yeah. When do you think they went into Layla? Yeah. When did, <laughs> when did Layla get these shafts? Um, <laughs> I, probably, I don't know. Probably when it was built or something. I, I mean, they might be 12 years old. I, I'm not really sure. But a lot of that stuff points to that and that they are, by today's standards, narrow. You know, they're, they're 67 inch. Um, they're super but, narrow. Yeah, 67 inch WMS. Uh, but they're, yeah, they're chromo 
three and a half spider tracks pro series knuckles i mean i i know he's replaced the knuckles since they were new for sure and um yeah ultimate uh unit bearings eight on six and a half but it's all 35 spline stuff so everybody in my class now that that has a budget of any kind has has moved on to 40 spline everything uh but i which I is was, wild to me that is I, massive crazy i know but it lets you like i get it it lets you drive with reckless abandon and just zero f's given about breaking axle shafts so that's cool but i don't know i mean are you then just beating the rest of the car to to shit yeah but you know, kevin I, you're you broke a 35 spine in your old car one time yeah i broke a i broke a chromoly inner short 35 spline it was not a yukon it was just a random shaft that came with the car and a lot of the conversation that came out of that because i'm learning how to just go from like putting parts together to like putting race car parts together and a lot of the conversation was well, when was the last time that that shaft was magnaflux i'm like i don't know what that. yeah i'm like i only <laughs> ever did that to cylinder heads like you do that yeah. to axle shafts so a lot of racers have said, yeah, like when you do your, your quote prep, you'll, you'll send your, your rotational stuff out for Magnaflux like that. So you'll get it all inspected and look for micro fractures. And I was like, man, I don't, so I didn't buy that shaft new. I have no idea like what it did before I did stuff with it. And it so, came in the car that had a massive amount of disrepair when you got it. Yes. So all I ever did, I had it out of the car multiple times. And the ears were in good shape and the splines were straight so for me that was my inspection and it went right back in and that uh, but was i can't say i can't say when i broke it like that was the area bfe race so picture moab level traction and i was driving like a pissed off teenager like that was the race that i thought like we got a shot at so i was wasn't that the second time going. you rolled that car that was the second time i rolled that car yeah do you think um, you heard it in the roll no I, I i we so we struggled in that race like not to get too deep into the weeds but maybe people care about this that course was only five miles long the each lap right and the top speed was like 45 50 60 miles an hour maybe but it was just enough that the car didn't have the legs in in low range my three to one atlas so but taking the time to shift from low to high a couple times a lap felt really cumbersome and like a waste of time so we actually practiced in low range and we practiced in high range and i could do all the rock obstacles in high range but i was having to be very aggressive on the throttle and i just i mean everything i did that day totally points to like that's how you break an axle shaft you so, gave it the full beans i gave it all the beans and yeah, i gave it the, the beans onion, and onion i i, I chopped up the wood and all gave it. it the onion with the beans inside yeah. your purse and then smacked it yeah, yeah <laughs> and then hit it with my purse yeah so, yeah it, it doesn't so, really surprise me but um i just think there's a lot like especially like some of the guys that i wheel with like kyle has he put a 40 spline spider tracks in the back of his ifs tacoma and i'm like i get it like if you have the money <laughs> but you're running 39 inch dot tires from bfg like you're not you're not going to break a 35 spine and isn't the front look. only like a seven and a half or an eight inch 
it's an eight inch on yeah. a 31 spine chromoly or if you have long travel the inner the center shaft is chromoly the outers are not and those are 31 spine as well so it's, it's you're sure if you break if you completely grenade the front you're probably not going to blow the rear up getting out of the trail but yeah. also you wouldn't with a the truck makes 260 horsepower at the flywheel you're not yeah. going to break the 35 yeah. spine anyway and i think i think a stock nine inch is like 20 seven spine or something goofy yeah. i don't think he'd break a stock nine inch with that truck no i don't think so and like i put 35 spine in my nine inch in mine chromoly semi flow and it's like and he get like guys in our group they talk shit about being semi flow i'm like i'm not ripping across the desert i was like yeah full flow is better but i can also go to napa and buy a wheel bearing for 28 dollars and yeah. replace it and well, if you really were so inclined, you could cut the ends of your axle tube off, weld on unit bearing cups, put the, right. you know, the Curry Toyota unit bearing on and roll down the road. Yeah. There's, you, know? you know, and there's guys in the stock class racing KOH on um, semi-flow. Like, I mean, you can, you could do anything. Everything just has a limitation, right? So right, like right. my, my quote new car, that's got a bunch of old used parts on it. Like it's going to have limitations. And I, just because I watch a 40 spline car with a reed case turbo 400 do something in front of me doesn't mean I get to do that. You right. know, I, I, you have to treat your equipment, you know, somewhat respectfully of what it can <laughs> tolerate. Mechan mechanical sympathy, Kevin. Mechanical sympathy is how and I like to put it. So. Maybe I'm wrong, but I heard this from someone that lived in California for a while and hug around the Slauson camp for a minute that randy in the 4400 car didn't go 40 spine until like two two three years ago in his I, car I, I, yeah i can't speak to that type of you know thing but i i will say i feel like everybody's done it in the last just couple of years right and, and, um, I, and i think if you're in contingency for that top spot like if you're shooting to be a king you don't you can't possibly not spend all the money on every part 100 percent right. Like whatever the best part is, if you want to be the king, you better have the best part because if you're not making 800 horse, like you're not probably not in the conversation, really. I know Randy did it with a lot less because of car conservation and the car holds together. So I think Randy is one of the few, he probably makes the least amount of horsepower out of all the Kings yeah. because I think Randy learned that like, from what I understand at 700 horsepower or 750 or 800 or whatever, you just break stuff. Right. You yep. know? And if you look like, I don't want to say he's slow in the desert because it's not slow, but compared good luck beating Randy in a bomber. Right. Compared to some of the new IFS cars and stuff and the, like the IFS IRS cars in the desert. Yeah. He gets walked on, but as soon as you get both those cars in the rocks, like his, his rock pace in that car is so much faster than oh, yeah. everyone else's. It's not even comparable. Well, yeah. and I mean, you want to talk about a car that was designed in Johnson Valley. That was his backyard when he started designing that car. Right. You know what I mean? Like that car was born and bred there. Yep. So, I mean, it's, and you know, if you want to be a King and Randy's racing a bomber, you're probably not going to beat him in a bomber. Fair. You're probably not going to beat him in his own car. Right. You know, but it's everyone's race to lose. If you window your motor, right. Yep. If you blow apart ring gears, if you break a transmission, like, you know, that, that kind of stuff happens and it just is what it is. And that's the best part about KOH, I think, is that like 
the thousand horsepower guy could be out, you know, at mile 40 because he just windowed his block. Yep. You know, like, well, and fuel consumption and capacity starts to come into all of that stuff as well. I mean, look at the last couple of years. You didn't see people really five years ago running to go get more fuel because they ran out of fuel. But on some of these big block cars, like the fuel consumption is just outrageous. Yeah, I think who who I think uh, yeah. Michael London ran out of fuel in the in his Legends car, right? Because didn't Terry run to go get fuel? Was that was uh, this that last year? That was for Brian Deegan's UTV. Oh, uh, so they ran out in the UTV. I yeah. think, uh, yeah, Shearer ran out of fuel two years ago. Yep. In the desert. Yeah, I think it was twenty-one or twenty. I don't know yeah. if it was last year or the year before, but yeah, and... but yeah. So, I mean, people still run out of fuel, and those are top guys. Like, yep. that's wild to me that, and I mean, that's just goes to show you though. Like, it it happens. You know, right. you can have the best program in the world, and you know, you had a weird burp when you're fuel guy was dumping fuel and he thought the tank was full, you know? Mm -hmm. Now to completely loop back to axles. (laughs) All right. So, so, so back to fabricated real race car stuff, Kevin, tell us about your axles. Your weak ass 35 spline axles. Yeah. My, my pathetic 35 spline. You might as well just put those under the samurai. Put the the, the side chick. Put Dan 35 underneath it and call it a day. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, I try to keep in mind that like, my class has a limit of a 37 inch DOT tire that at the lowest pressure I'd probably consider running is like 24. So it's not like short of that Moab situation. You rarely have the traction. I feel like there's a lot of other, you know, weak links. Um, you know, not, I don't think it's just going to come down to 300 M 35 spline shafts, you know, and that's the nice part about the, the spider track stuff is you get those, um, I don't even know like the terminology for it. Maybe Derek can think of it, but like my entire yoke assembly up front for the steering, like that sh- splines onto the inner axle shafts. So the inner axle shafts are just straight double spline shafts. So oh, right. Can... You're, so you don't have like a drive slug. Uh, no, I mean on the inners, like the ears aren't so it's almost like a CV. the shaft. Oh, I got you. Oh, okay, so so the U-joint ears, actually, oh, so I got it's you. So a you have separate, a, ma- it's a separate machined piece yep. that splines onto the inner yep. shaft. Is there a bolt that holds those on, or what? Uh, the there's a on? bolt holding the inner, or sorry, the outer stub shaft to the ears, but, and I'd have to go out in the garage and look. I, I have zero service history, obviously. I, I mean, I gutted right. the axles, and threw that stuff on the shelf and just put been working with the housings ever since. It but. could be C clip too. Like, yeah. Kind of so it doesn't pull because there's not that much pulling force. No, on there's no. near zero pulling force. Yeah, on. no, it's all, I mean, it's engagement and it's captured and you know, right. cares, so, so, so for those listening, what Kevin's talking about is typically on a, on a stock style, um, outer axle shaft, the part that goes from the U-joint out to your locking hub or your drive flange or whatever's out there, that the ears that the U-joint go into and then the shaft that is then splined at the end is typically all one piece. So, Kevin, what you're saying is you've got this machine piece with splines cut in it for the for the U-joint, for the ears, and then you've got, call it an 8-inch piece, an 8-inch shaft that's splined at both ends, 
one of those goes into that machine piece with the ears for the u-joint and the other one goes into your drive slug yes okay and the same assembly on the inner shaft gotcha so and then yeah same thing on your inner shaft so right. so again the factory would be all one piece and then they just right. machine it line it right okay yeah um, interesting yeah are those That's are those granite so Brannock, originally it's all so that the ear U-joint assembly is a is a spider track setup, and that's where they kind of claim that 50 degrees of steering thing is the, the ears of clearance to get that much. And that's still uh, like a 1480-size joint? I think so. I, don't, I, I haven't measured We'll go it. with yes. Okay, let's go with yes. <laughs> um, but the, like, you know, I can, I'm going to run like a Yukon super joint in the middle, but the ears are obviously that's like spider tracks brand part. And then the shafts, um, Brannock has copied, made, offered as a, as a, you know, aftermarket source for new shafts. So I think I currently like what came with the axles was a combination of spider tracks, shafts and Brannock shafts, but you can get them, you know, they're all 300 M stuff. So right and, and think, you're not running 800 horsepower so you're probably not going to break a 35 spline 300 m gun drill shaft that's uh they're not gun drilled uh, oh they're probably not. an option but no, uh, throw them in the track they're junk now just, just yeah no it. it's garbage it's all no i would uh, anticipate like you know anybody that's been paying attention like i spent some time analyzing steering angle and just because you can pull off 50 degrees of steering the more you angulate a, a u-joint you're steering Did you just make that word up i, I don't know yeah <laughs> i should have said it more confidently angulate uh, the, more, the more you angulate a uh, the more, the more angulation you have yes you you certainly risk exploding it out the open side right so um it, it sounds like from from the other racers that are willing to talk about it with me that you're safe in the low 40s but Probably once you cross that 44 degrees of steering range is when you start shitting out U-joints, you know, on command. So I'm going to, I've got a lot of steering angle now that I went to that, that longer throw ram, but right. I'm going to, I'm prepared to limit it down to like, you know, 42 or something. But, but I'll probably, I mean, maybe I'll just go out and break one just to see what it takes. That way I know. Do you have any idea what the old car was? Uh, I wish I had. 22 it, but i'm guessing it turned about 36 degrees right just terrible bad. just based on dana 60 and the distance the tie rod mounted from ball joint center line uh, it the math comes out to about 36 degrees but I, i'd never actually measured it on that car but it was absolutely the angulation that, if you will yeah 36 degrees of angulation and uh, <laughs> with a spool up front yeah that car couldn't turn around in a football field you know so i'm i'm full spool now in the car and mm -hmm. i had a detroit before i can honestly tell you with my steering setup or whatever i can't tell the difference it mm -hmm. literally steers the same yeah so i think if you have a double-ended ram it doesn't give two shits if it's a full spool or a no no I, i'm just saying like you get so much scrubbing because oh you i got that, you you yep. need that differentiation of wheel speed to make that true like rotation yep. you don't get it and you get you get this understeer situation yep. and you get this shove so yeah. if you're if you're on a surface that gives it all yeah, it, yeah. right flash so, the converter kevin skinny yeah skinny pedal <laughs> yeah you end up just 
romping on the throttle to kind of lift the front end around and stuff. And when you're it's at full bad. lock, spooled in the front and heavy on the pedal, that's the best case scenario right. for you joint life. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. it's great. It's great for you joint life. The only thing better is if you can get one tire in the air to dead stop. Dead stop. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I like yeah. it. That's yeah, great. That's a good one. Okay. So, so it's, it's all, your knuckles are fabricated on that because yeah. they're the spider yeah. tracks. Fabricated. Um, uniball upper lower. What do they use? Yeah. And, and we didn't yeah, talk about they're them. little. Um, I want to say they're because what's the big uniball? Is that an inch and a quarter? It's like pretty much anymore. It looks everyone carries one inch. They're not that yeah. big. They're they're the little guys. Um, a one inch uniball is fucking strong though. Yeah. Well, and it, it's the way they, you know, what you're asking of it. Like, if you screw up that uniball, you're you're probably I mean, they're going to wear out, right? The, the, the sheer like vibration and impact and yeah. of running through the desert, like and rotation, you're going to wear out the uniball joint and that's the intent. But if you broke a uniball or the bolt out of a spider tracks, like you probably trashed a lot of shit on your car. Like, what do you, did you, what do you think the bolt is like a three quarter bolt, one inch bolt? I should, I should almost just carry the computer in the garage and start go caliper and let's go take it out there. Right. Uh, so, cause the, it's big. The yeah, no, it's a, it's a full size bolt. I mean, it, it's legit. Like it's a, again, just because of like the sheer vertical separation of them. Right. So you're, it's a, it's a uniball upper and lower with a, a bolt acting as like a kingpin, I guess. Right. Okay. Um, they're, I don't know, nine inches apart vertically. So, the sheer like strength they get from yeah exactly so, so what's wild the, to the me listeners can't it, see that but that's right a, that's a good joke he's yeah. holding up his fingers thumb and thumb and pointer finger to tell you how 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 thick it is the the thing that's wild to me about that is that so a heim joint and a uniball are essentially the same thing the difference is the heim joint has a place to hold the uniball with threads on the end right yeah, yeah exactly. so yep. the weakest direction for a heim joint is in the direction of the bolt, right? So, so pushing, trying to push the ball in or out of its captured area. So the weight of your car, every time you land, every time you do anything, and, and this is every race axle out there is like this, you are shoving force into the weakest direction on that uniball, and they live. That's wild to me. Yeah. yeah. The There's thing, nothing stopping it. The big thing with uniballs versus Heinz, though, is... Their Heims or uniballs in the bolt direction, the angle is a lot less than a Heim would be. So you get more capture on the ball itself. Got you. Cause you're, cause I'd imagine, okay. So, cause the ball is designed to go in one way. So on the bottom side, it, it encompasses the underside of it or whatever more. So it can yeah. shove it. And through. so, like, you probably get 40% of encapsulation if that's a word Encaps uh, encapsulation encapsulation the, is that like angulation it's like angulation uh of the ball itself which is like on a heim it's like on a heim you can pull like what on a on a one inch heim you can get absurd amount of angulation angulation right versus well, on a one inch uniball i think it i think on a one inch uniball it's like uh 25 degrees 27 degrees it's not as much as you would think oh he's gonna give us all garage I'm gonna, yeah I'm, I'm getting parts out i'm gonna grab some calipers i don't want to be 
You know what I don't want to be, Derek? I don't want to be one of those podcast guys that like just I don't know, like because it's cool. Right? <laughs> if you say if you say it like with the same amount of like conviction that you made up the word angulation with, nobody will question you. I really I thought angulation was a real word. Wow, is this a product plug right now? Oh yeah, uh, Baja Designs. <laughs> brought to you by Baja Designs. What's on here next? All right, uh, I just happen to have a brand new service knuckle service kit, Spider-Trex calls it. And Spider-Trex does not sponsor me. They actually told me they wouldn't. Are you going to show us your balls? <laughs> yes, yes he, he's going to measure them first. Look at how look at how much capsulation is on that. Well, right, but how much force does it take to shove the ball out of that? Because that's the direction, like, every time you jump or land, like, the up and down right. direction. You know what I mean? Right. So just I'm gonna say some shit that I don't know what I'm talking about, but follow me here. Uh, so like a C on like a on like a one inch C clip, I think yeah. it takes like a hundred and eighty thousand PSI to to break a one inch C clip off okay. of force. So if you think of it, it obviously it's not direct, but if you think of how much that would take, like they're probably significantly stronger in that direction than we think they are right but so here uh, so that's the bolt you're showing us the bolt the laptop you're terrible at radio by the way nobody can yeah. see this well i was getting ready to talk that was like the hey let me talk symbol oh, okay you have uh, a good face for radio that's about thanks. it we all do so that's a that's a seven eighths shank bolt and that is the corresponding uh seven eighths id uniball that it runs so in that uniball compared to like what we're used to seeing, if everyone's ever seen a Heim joint, there's a lot less material in the actual ball itself. It looks like the it looks like the hole through the ball is like almost as big as the ball itself. Like there's very little uh, angu angulation. Yeah, no, it, uh, it would not, these, the these would have very low misalignment, right? This yeah. would, I this like would angulation. Allow, <laughs> this would allow for very little angulation. Uh, my to, lower you know, ball joints. Here's, a, here's my... an inch and a quarter rod end for comparison. Okay. That's very. Hey, close spin. To can you can you spin the the uniball inside it? So we like how big of a you know what I mean? How big of a ball is it? Like, we'll or is it more tube less ball? <laughs> yeah. No, I said that. More shaft. Yeah, yeah. It's we're it's not pretty, even uh, trying. It just happens. Hey. Yeah. It's pretty tight. I don't know if I can uh, oh, God. it at all. You have to brag. So your oh, man. ball is tight. Yes. Yeah, good luck spinning that. Do, do they that. not spin? Maybe they only pivot. No, they pivot. Or they spin. No, I'm just, I'm, they, you know what I mean? Like, maybe that particular uniball from oh, Spider Tracks is designed solely no, as a pivot and not a missile it's, prob anything. it's probably an it's, FK uniball. It is. Yeah, it's an FK. I could give you the part number if I wasn't blind. W That's the something. same exact yeah. uniball. It's on my lower control arm. Yeah. And um, then on your I, lower control arm is the uniball. No, it's the same direction his would be. So the bolt goes up and down. Bolt goes in, laterally. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But mine has a misalignment spacer, but it's very small. So it's still that seven eighths through hole. And then okay. the, uh, but the misalignment spacer shrinks it down to three quarter. Uh, but it's okay. still, if that makes sense. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah, this and is I, their arrangement. Yeah, look at that. In the knuckle. Okay. So there you go. Seven eighths uh, shank bolt. Seven eighths in the ball. Yeah, I you know I stand by that if you you disrupt a seven eighths diameter kingpin, you, you probably trash some serious stuff on your car. Yeah, and, that, and that's something we didn't talk about. about so like, you know. on, on your old car, we didn't we didn't talk about uh, ball joint eliminators. So on your old car, you had ball joint knuckles, correct? And you had an issue with where where the it had been beat on enough that the ball joint literally wouldn't stay where it was supposed to be pressed in. Yeah, but I would even like I mean just to for the the ball joint strength conversation, I think take that wear out of it and just oh absolutely about, yeah the evolution of what i went through with that so literally when i bought the car it had a broken upper ball joint uh but nobody that broke the ball joint could tell me what it hit when it did it um that was when team israel had rented the car and raced koh with it where did so, the ball joint break uh oh no Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I learned all this when I was building the car myself to put it all back together. So there is a bushing that drops in, right? To into uh, the seat you would use for your alignment bushing, yep. right? If you yep. if you were to try to correct camber or caster. Well, I don't even know what it came out of or whatever, but it had the wrong bushing in it with the wrong taper. So it was meeting the tapered shank of the ball joint improperly and stress loading it so instead of that taper mating perfectly and spreading that load it was like i don't know the metallurgical term for that but it was like stress pointing it super precisely so any side load on the tire would strike that ball joint very unevenly and it ended up just breaking the ball joint shaft you know in half where it was okay it so it was that was a parts incompatibility thing because of like really poor attention to detail from somebody that previously put right. it together so so, uh, so I'm, once i had gotten Sorry. the right bushings in it and it was a spicer part number that uh dynatrack actually finally ended up having for me because no part store could quite find me what i was looking for that um i tried moog ball joints and they wore out by the time i was done pre-running day one they were both sloppy as could be and Checks then out. Somebody suggested a mechanic friend I know that just does a lot of service work. He suggested this brand called Mevotech. So I tried Mevotech ball joints and had very similar results to where they wore out super quick. And then the last side-by-side -side comparison I did was I literally put uh, Mevotech in one side of the car and I put Dana Spicer brand ball joints in the other side of the car and then did the same driving. And the Dana Spicers were still tight-ish when the Mevatex were smoked. So if you have to run a ball joint, I believe that the Dana Spicer is probably the best one. Now, I'm not talking about any of the rebuildable ones that are like on the aftermarket. I, I don't, I can't speak to that. No. A lot of those for rock crawling, they hang super low below the knuckle and I don't like any of that drag material down there. So I had good luck with the Dana Spicers, but then the last KOH, I upgraded to the ball joint eliminator that Nick Barna uh, makes and sells. He's an East Coast like rock bouncer guy, and Is not to be confused 
there's another company out there and I, I don't even know if I want to say their name, but like ball joint eliminator is what I used, not yeah. and he's 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 available. So I, I ordered the same ones on your recommendation for my car last year when I changed the knuckles and everything else. Yeah. And um basically if you I DM the guy at like I don't know, nine o'clock at night his time, and yep. I had a shipping number within twenty minutes and had those things like within the week. So yeah. dude's, dude's awesome. Dude's super on it. And yeah. I would get play in ball joints every time the car left the ground, essentially. Right. It would blow out ball joints. Um, once I went to ball joint eliminators, my lowers have zero play. So it's, well, it's that's... all the misalignment in the upper that kills it. So when you do a ball joint eliminator, yep. it only eliminates the upper ball joint. Right. So you still have a lower ball joint, but that lower ball joint is fucking massive. But, and here's the other thing. So that's the big misconception. Number one is that most people hear the term ball joint eliminator and they think you're getting rid of both of them. You're not, you're getting rid of the upper. And if you think about like the shear force, yeah, the strain is on the upper and it's smaller, which, you know, I can't go back to the engineering of that to begin with, but um, none of these things were engineered to do what we do with them. Right. So the other part is where you're like, well, I still have a ball joint lower. Well, the part that gets sloppy or loose is the ball and socket from vertical play or motion. Well, that only happens when you have two ball joints and they both start getting blown out. Well, then they, they get loose, like a shoulder socket gets loose or something or a bad hip. But as soon as you run a ball joint eliminator top, part of the actual process is to shim it so that there is no vertical travel in your knuckle. And if there's no vertical travel allowed because of the eliminator, your lower ball joint socket can't get sloppy. It can't go up and down because the eliminator on the top side keeps it from doing it. So yes, you still have a ball joint lower. It's massive. And the way you properly assemble a ball joint eliminator is you eliminate that vertical you know motion or play in the in the knuckle and and then it it lasts a long time so i i you know i don't think you need it for maybe i don't know a non-racing application but it, it certainly was a big boost to confidence for me to have those things in there yeah. i i think the average trail rig you know the average person listening that's like oh man i think i want a one-ton swap my car like that's benefiting from our BSing here tonight is is probably gonna be one hundred percent fine with a ball joint axle. Like, yeah. I don't think it's gonna hurt them. Um, no, I mean, the only time I've seen ball joints fail, it's and it's not even the ball joint that failed. It's an ear or a U joint yep. failed, yep. and as it came around, it hit the knuckle and pried the ball joint out of it. That is not a ball joint failure. That is an axle shaft failure that yeah. broke something else. Mm -hmm. And I know a bunch of people that run the, I shouldn't say a bunch, I know four or five people that run 05 plus Super Duty axles with ball joint eliminators on the street and like daily drive them. And they don't seem yeah, to have no, any issues that I way. I mean, it's got a like a, you know, I'm going to get this wrong and sorry. Light. But oil light. light I mean, it, yeah, it's it's got like an oil light bronze that's kind of lubricating by nature, but they have a Zerk fitting on them. And I mean, like anything else, if if you want to maintain it, like you can totally run it on the street. Like I would have no trepidation about that at all. I mean, it's no different than than a kingpin. 
It's yeah. literally the same concept it's, of a wear, wear, wear part on a king. Wear surface. Yep. But if, if you don't maintain your junk, then no, you shouldn't do that. But yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be afraid to run a ball joint eliminator on the street. So in your, so you had a Dana 60 in the old car that had ball joint uppers, you did ball joint eliminator. Were you running a standard Dana 60 ring gear in it or did you run a 10 inch? What'd you run in your No, car? it was, it was just a Yukon ring and pinion for a Dana 60. Um, now it is a high pinion, you know, that Dyna track that is, that is like right. a high pinion 60. It's basically a Ford 60. Yeah. But I just ordered an off the shelf Yukon ring and pinion 538. Um, that car was weird. It was a mismatch, right? It was 538 up front and 543 out back. Well, but, you had a nine inch in the back, yeah. right? Um, but a 538 gear set, I had it rim polished just for fun because it seemed like a cool thing to do. And um, You say you had your rim polished? <laughs> yes, sorry. Uh, a rim job, if you will. Yeah. Uh, let me, you let had me, a rim uh, job on the ring gear? Rim yes. Job, yeah. The ring and pinion got um, micro-polished in some uh, fancy machine that I paid a service It's like a NASCAR for. thing. It's, it's yeah. so you don't have to break in the wear surface of the gear. Yeah. If you ever if you ever see a gear set and it's shiny, like it's like mirror. It, yeah, it's been R E M polished. Um but yeah, supposedly it reduces friction and, and alleviates the break-in process and all that. But that gear set ran two King of the Hammers, San Felipe, uh, and I never broke a tooth off it or nothing. I mean, we've ripped What's that. that? Like? Yeah, we've <laughs> that like? we we ripped that inner axle shaft, that 35 spline chromoly like the ring and pinion was fine like yeah i no issues with that thing and so on so on my front axle um i've broken two is it nine and three quarter off the shelf ring and pinions uh one was a revolution and the other one was a american standard or usa gear maybe um and and both of them so I have all the things that everyone tells you is weak, right? Um, I had stock shafts when I broke the first one. Um, I use a, a bolt-on style U-joint clip on the yoke. I don't use the big fully encapsulated like U-bolt style. Um, and I still, and I had off-the-shelf worn locking hubs. And I broke two ring gears on the same set of locking hubs on a Detroit locker diff. You know what I mean? Like, all the things that people say are weak, and I broke a Dana 60 ring gear twice. Um, so I've since changed. Um, Nitro gear and axle makes a 10 inch. It, it, it's actually made for a, a Super 60, which comes out of the F450, F550. Um, it's actually a 10 inch gear. So it's a 10 inch ring and pinion now versus the nine and three quarter or whatever. And uh, that's what's in it now. Um, We'll see if that lives any longer, but it's supposed to be shot peened and it's a bigger diameter. And, you know, we went through the gear setup and kind of manipulated the, a little bit to try and uh, hopefully live through some of the shock load in the desert. So, but having a 10 inch ring gear, I think is going to add a, just a ton of strength to it. Um, yeah. Cause you're running, are you running tens in yours? You're running high pinion. So we'll back up to yours. You have okay. a fabricated housing for spider tracks, which for those that don't necessarily, maybe pay attention to the race car stuff that means he's in his particular setup he's going to run a dropout third member which is based off of a ford nine inch but mm -hmm. it's modified right it's not just a stock low pinion ford nine inch 
Yeah, it, it would accept that. I mean, it would it would accept you could, anything right. in that nine inch category. Um, these came with a carrier called High High Nine, and it, it's very specific. That that guy makes that product, and he makes a High Nine and a Mega High Nine. Uh, these are the Mega High Nines, which um, it's got a bigger bearing set or something. I forget the exact specifics, but yeah, I think the gear is different too, right? It's a proprietary gear, and the, yeah, that's the problem. Know. That's the problem with them in general is it's a proprietary gear set, and if I stick, and they with only them, come in like a five thirty eight or something, right? The Mega High, I think the High Nine you can get in a couple gear ranges, but the Mega is only available in five thirty eight. So. Um, I got them. We're going to see if we can service them. I'm going to give them to my gear guy and see if we can, we can, you know, get some life out of them, at least get some good testing out of the car to decide if I like it or, or whatever. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if in the end I end up with like a, a Gearworks i9 with some Yukon gears in it or something like that. Yeah. But so I, so yeah, I anything nine inch you want to put in them is, you know, it's fair game. I just, I'm building the suspension of this thing around running high pinions front and rear, which again, for anybody that's following has been a pain in the butt. But if I, if my drive shafts are way above the rocks, that benefits me and my suspension can drop out that much farther and I don't have any driveline bind and everything's just right. better if I can make it happen. Right. And for those following along with the conversation, um, typically a high pinion, when we say high pinion, that means where the drive shaft actually comes in it's above the axle center line that makes it high pinion so right. when you take a ford nine inch from the factory it came in the rear application and it was a low pinion so when they run them high pinion in the front you're running on the i guess what would be the proper side of the gear but running on a nine inch high pinion in the rear you're now running on the coast side of the gear um so i know gear works i think tube works too they actually make another proprietary gear to use in a rear application um, just so that they try and strengthen that gear. Cause if you look at a, if you look at a ring gear, the tooth um, from lack of a better word, it looks like a right angle triangle on its side. Um, and, and, and so you've got a weak side of that gear and a strong side because when you're in reverse, that's the weakest side of the gear in your rear axle from the factory. Right? So your car spins what, a 30th of its life in reverse, maybe even less, right? So it's, they engineer it, the strong side of the gear to be the drive side of the gear. Um, so when you start running them backwards, that's when you get uh, a pretty substantial, and I, and I looked and I couldn't find it. I've seen 30% or 40% reduction in strength quoted. Um, I couldn't find anything to back that up. And I, and I yeah. don't, you know, and, and typically the only thing I did find is that when you break a ring and pinion, Say you break it in reverse, assuming they were in the right locations. A ring and pinion broken with force on the reverse side of that tooth breaks the whole tooth off. A ring and pinion broken on the drive side typically only breaks the top edge of the tooth off. Hmm. So you end up with an entire a full tooth failure in reverse and only the very edge of the tooth. And the edge of the tooth means the gear actually climbed out versus it overloaded it and sheared the whole thing off. Yeah, and that's the only thing I could find, and that's what the internet told me, so I'm going to go with it. So if you don't agree with me or if I'm wrong, tell the internet. It's not my fault. <laughs> a big thing with, because I've done a decent amount of 9-inch stuff, the like the inherent design of the 9-inch with whether it being high pinion or low pinion, the, the high point offset being away from the ring gear and super high or super low, depending on whether it's high pinion or low pinion, 
gives you the most tooth contact. So yeah, it's a nine it's a nine inch ring gear, but you can get more tooth contact on a nine inch ring gear than you're gonna get of like a fourteen bowl or a sterling ten and a half. Right. And then uh then like what you're saying with reverse with being on the coast side or the drive side of the gear, when obviously anytime those gears are coming together, it's trying to push away. Mm-hmm. Uh but on the drive side of the gear, that push away uh, motion or force is significantly less than being on the coast side of the gear. Because on the coast side of the gear, it's almost two angles pushing against each other. So it's really allowing it to push away versus it more hooking together like it right. would on right. the drive side of the gear. Now, the big high point offset and all that gear engagement for like people that daily drive and stuff does make nine inch gears significantly louder than like a Dana 60 and stuff like that. So that guys that are more in the rec wheeling stuff, they have to understand that, yeah, nine inches are great. They're really strong, but you do get a little bit more harmonics and noise out of them already. But that's also the argument, right? The guys that are listening to us talk about this and are going to spend this money on, on building the strongest thing they can they're probably running forties uh, that aren't balanced yeah. well. They're right. making all kinds of noise. They don't have exhaust on the car. They're probably not even going to notice the noise from the manager. Oh, no, not right. Good. It's the street rod guys, you know, from Kevin's past life. They were going to bitch about the noise you were in. Yeah, yep. yeah. These guys are lucky if their driveline angles are even remotely close and not vibrating. Yeah, right, right. Like that. Yeah. That's it. What real quick? Since we're talking about the nine-inch stuff, I heard this brought up on another podcast is the load bolt situation Mm. and kevin i I don't know how much you've messed with the load bolt stuff on yours um all of what i'm about to say is just my own experience that i've dealt with uh regarding load bolts and if you don't know what that is for people that are listening is it's really common on nine inch stuff because of the dropout uh and you can actually use the factory fill plug uh, for the load bolt, that's it's super common to take the take a nine inch housing that has a fill plug in it, drilling it and tapping it for a load bolt, literally right where the factory fill plug would be. And the load bolt sits directly across from the pinion. So, as you sh- if you were to shock load the diff, this bolt is set off the back of the pinion, so it will catch the deflection of the diff. Uh, a lot of the misconceptions that people get with the load bolt is you don't run the load bolt until it contacts the back of the ring gear and set it there. It's going to wear on there and you're going to have natural deflection between the bearings. And like Kevin's setup is, I'm assuming at least a three and a quarter inch bearing. It's probably more, it, it would be surprising. It's like a 3.8 inch bearing for the carrier bearings. Uh, and the bigger the bearing the less uh, deflection you get in the, the carrier. Um, but that load bolt, if you check the run out on the back of your ring gear and say the run out on the back of your ring gear is, you know, two thou, uh, you set that load bolt, you know, two, three thou off the high point of the run out on the back of the ring gear. And all that load bolt is there to do if you're super, if Kevin's super bound up, like buried in the rocks and just, you know, skinny pedals the shit out of it. When if that bounces or shock loads a shit out of it, instead of deflecting past what the bearings can take and then stripping the gear, it's going to contact that load bolt. And sure, every time you contact that load bolt, it's going to start wearing the bolt down. And your clearances are going to get more, and you're going to start uh, 
allowing more deflection in the bearings, but it's also a race car. So those things are uh, consumable. Th they're consumable. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're something that like you want to, I don't want to say set on a regular basis, but like it's something that you keep an eye on. And even the load bolt in my, you know, Toyota that has more daily driver miles on it than, you know, most people's daily drivers is like, I pull the rear end, I pull the third member out of it and reset the load bolt and check the bearing and stuff every year on top of that. And it's a right. recreational wheeler. So load bolts really have their place. And I think they have their place in recreational applications as well. And then in the race application, like the high nine stuff runs dual load bolts and like they've been used for decades in the drag racing community with nine inches and stuff. And I think, I think there's a lot more to them. And I think they're a lot more effective than people that don't know anything about axles give their opinion. on. But I think like anything you just, it, and I think you touched on it briefly, like it's only as good as the person setting it up, right. like every ring and pinion, right? Like anybody can set up a ring and pinion. It doesn't mean they're going to do it right. It doesn't mean they're going to do it right. Every time, if you don't set up the load bolt, right, it's going to do nothing for you. Right. Um, with that, you know, and man, I, I think load bolts talking to the handful of, you know, I've got, I've got a, a couple of buddies up here being in Northern California that, that race, but also set up gears for a living at a couple different big shops. And they all have a different opinion about a load bolt. Oh yeah. Like one's like back the thing out, cut it off. It doesn't matter. You don't need it. The other one's like set it up. Right. You know, like you just went through and, and I think you hit the nail on the head. Like you look at, Look at a dragster. Look at drag racing. The the nine inch style rear end is like what everybody runs, and they run it all for a reason, right. you know. And, and they're using billet aluminum carriers that they're going to be stiff, but you're still going to get deflection. And and my question for you, Trevor, is when you pull that load bolt out, knowing that you street drive it more than you wheel it because it's your daily. Um, do you notice wear on the load bolt? Yeah. Like so, you see it so. Is it, is it like, and, and my other question was, do you do any like marking or anything on it to like, like, do you clear the, clear the wear mark, witness mark? And then re, when you reset it kind of thing? Yeah. So typically I'll set it with gear marking compound and I'll literally, uh, find the high spot on the ring gear. And then like a couple inches on both sides of the high spot, I'll mark with gear marking compound. And then, uh, I run it, I rotate that till I can see the gear marking compound through the load bolt hole and then run the load bolt until it touches and put an indicator on the back of it, back it out, fourth out, and then lock it down. And uh, then I uh, wipe the back of the ring gear off completely, uh, acetone it, and then I actually paint pen the whole back of the ring gear. Okay. Um, and the last time I took it out, uh, or the first time I pulled the diff apart, um, just to check it, you could see like the you could see the load bolt had contacted all the way around. Um, and then the last time I took it out, there was like a four inch section in the paint mark that you could see the load bolt actually contacted. Uh, wow, that was that was a lot of deflection. I was like, right. So like, there's there, and I obviously I don't know for sure, but just guessing, if the load bolt wasn't there, I think everything would have been fine. I don't think it necessarily saved it from breaking, but just giving it something to contact and take the load right. off of the bearings. Like one, if anything, it's protecting the races and protecting the uh, carrier bearing preload because it's not starting to stretch the caps and stuff like that uh, versus well, not it, having it. 
And if you can limit deflection down to, you know, three or four thou versus right. five or six thou, yeah. right? It's, it's, you're going to get less potential for fractures in the gear. You're going to get less potential for wear in the bearing for, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't hurt anything to have it properly set up, whether you, no. whether someone thinks it's going to like save it or not. Right. Is my thought. And, and I know a lot of drag, a, a decent amount of drag racing guys that have running nine inches with load bowls forever. And like part of the, you know, bringing the car back into the pits after three runs, they literally get under the car, break the load bolt loose, and they'll run the load bolt until it contacts the back of the ring gear and set it at like six inch pounds or something like that. Just a, just a small amount yeah. of preload against the back of the ring gear. There's nothing that's going to stop. You could put 80 foot pounds on the back of that load bolt and it, the car right. is still going to move and give it, you know, an eighth of a mile and it's no longer going to be rubbing on the back of the ring gear. You right. have shavings in the oil, right? But these guys would run it in until it contacted and then lock the bolt back down because by the time they get through the burnout and back into the lights, uh, it's when they leave, it's literally riding on the load bolt. And it, no, it doesn't cause very much drag because you have oil sling and everything in there, but it just protects the. Well, they uh, just, you know, and they just need it for six seconds or whatever. Right. Like, yep. right. That's it. And, and they're also they have traction on their side, which we don't. Right. And they have three times the horsepower that we. Yeah, don't I mean, here. I think so, about like you know from your first conversation about like what it does. It it's like, well, why is any of this happening to begin with? And it's like, you you stomp on the skinny pedal and things start turning, and eventually right. the pinion has to rotate the ring gear, and the ring gear has to rotate the tires. You know. And if the tires don't want to turn, they don't want to rotate the earth. The pinion and the ring gear have an argument about who's going to move. And if they can't rotate, the ring gear is going to move to the side. So it's that it's that deflection that you're you're trying to, you know, manage, like like Derek's saying, like maybe three or four thousandths is good. I would say five or six thousandths is probably good. Like I'm not a gear guy, but like I think when you talk about thirty thousandths, now you're you're effed, you know, stuff broke. Right. So, uh, well, if you've ever set up a ring and pinion, look at what four thousandths of shim will do to the pattern. Right. You know what I mean? You can be five thousandths and your pattern goes from good to shit. Like, you know, I would rather keep it at at what that range is to know that my pattern, my my tooth contact stays ideal as or or at the edge of ideal. Like I know, um, you know, my my gear guy, Kevin Lowrance, if anybody wants to follow him on IG um is he set up like, again he moved right he yeah i moved to az he got his shop built and i think he's just about ready to take some work again so i mean he's gonna get my high nines when, when he's ready for him but um you know i attribute like my ring and pinion success to to his setup and you know when i quiz him about like how he got started he's like oh i broke a ring and pinion and i just figured i'd learn how to do it you know and then next thing you know your buddy asks you to do his and his and, you know next thing you know you're yep. done several hundred desert trucks in Southern California. And, um, you know, I figured if, if he can make a desert truck survive, you know, a Baja 1000 victory or something, he could probably set up a ring and pinion for King of the Hammers. But, um, anyway, he's become a friend and, and I trust his opinion and everything, but, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, his, his whole theory on like, and not to give away his secret, but when you set up a, a pattern, you're talking about like loading it with what the palm of your hand or something right. and then rotating it. So he sets it 
Oh, I'm going to screw up the more to the toe. Deeper, deeper. Uh, yes. But yeah. I mean, I think if you're describing a gear tooth, I think the way they talk about his toe and heel, right? Always deeper. Yeah. So. But when you're, the, the, the gear is going to be in this. There's drag guys that set gears up where they're, they won't pattern. They're so deep. Yeah. Because they know they know so much yeah, deflection. They know what's gonna well, and they want to. The gear it wants to climb out. It wants right. the pinion wants to climb out of the diff. Yep. And the ring gear wants to go away from the pinion. So you yep. have to kind of think yep. about that when you're setting it up. When you yep. have traction like a dragon. So he so he biases it a bit like that, you know, and probably yep. dependent on everything, you know, size of ring gear and horsepower and traction and all that stuff. Right. You know? So like. When he knows I've got a 37-inch tire that's pretty heavily inflated. And, um, and a lot you know. of, not to step on your toes, but a lot of the, uh, like, the to a point on both sides of the shallower gears are usually quieter. Deeper gears are usually louder. And uh, the, obviously, the guys that set stuff up and have been setting stuff up for abuse and off-road use for a long time will always they'll put a pattern here and they're like yeah it looks pretty good it's like right in the middle and then they'll go a couple they'll go two thou deeper so then they run the pattern like okay i could pull two thou out of it if i wanted to and then it'd be better or they'll put a little bit more in it because they want they want to run it on that deeper side because even when like on trucks that are driven on the street all the time like jeeps that are driven on you know guys are daily driving shit on 40s and stuff like it takes a decent amount just to get the truck going so right. like when you're cruising down the highway or stuff like that you're already dealing with deflection let alone beating on it off-road especially right. in your guys' applications right yeah well and then that's something to think about too a lot of a lot of times people are like oh i've got a 22 re it doesn't make any power but you're running it through like three and a half transfer cases yeah and yeah you're you 500 you're 501 you're 501 right, like, on 40s that you just pulled the valve stems out of. So. You're just shoving so much torque into that thing. Like, you have to consider that, like, sure, maybe in the Pacific Northwest in the winter, it's muddy, it's wet, it's sloppy, it's snowy, it's whatever. But, like, then you go out to Moab and you have unlimited sandpaper grip tape traction. You're just going to start shit. Really? He's taking pictures of this? Appreciate it, Kevin. You're, you're just going to shear everything off, you know? It, yeah. And it's not... And it becomes to, I think people forget the low range torque multiplication they're getting and, right. and where that goes. And that's all going into your ring gear. Oh, yeah. So, and then, you know, to your, to your point of, you know, setting it just a little bit deeper. So I broke two ring and pinions and I work a lot with East Coast gear. And so I was talking to my, my guy, Will, over there. I was like, hey, man, you know, what do you, what do you think is causing this? And he's like, it's heavy and whatever, you know, send me pictures. So I send him pictures of the gear pattern. Uh, my really good buddy does my gears, does a great job. The guy, my, my guy East coast said, Oh no, your gear pattern's great. He goes, maybe just set it just a hair deeper, like the yep. same concept you were just talking about. So when we went through and reset the front end with the new gears on this one, I set it a little bit deeper. The last time I raced, uh my throttle stuck wide open um <laughs> on the second lap of a seven lap race and i finished so so i went five laps of a short course race with the throttle stuck wide open which means i did exactly what you're not supposed to do and i landed off i landed on the throttle because i didn't have a choice right yep. i didn't break my ring opinion 
yeah. it, it's not clunking. It's fine. Like we're good. So I think there's definitely something to be said. And that's, that's that learning experience, right? Like drag guys learn that. Um, I'm, I'm learning on my own. I broke two ring opinions. Hopefully right. I don't break a third. Um, you know, and I think it just goes to show like people think, Oh, it's got tons. You can't break it. Bullshit. You can break yeah. anything if you try hard enough. 100%, well, especially with a turbo LS, but that's a whole well, and anyway, you, you know, you were talking about like, were my gears anything special and blah, blah, blah. There's, I don't even know if we want to go down this rabbit hole. We should probably have like some sort of timer to shut us down here. But, <laughs> um, I always ran my car in the desert in two wheel drive, but it wasn't purposely to save the ring and pinion up front. It was because my drive shaft was garbage and the car <laughs> would vibrate. It would vibrate viciously in four wheel drive above like 45, 50 miles an hour. So I would always pull the Atlas out of front and just run two wheel drive in the desert. But you talk to more and more people, Derek, uh, Lauren Healy. And now you talk about like a constant, a four wheel drive vehicle hitting whoops with the front axle, then the back axle, then the front axle, then the back axle. And you talk about that constant shock load through the drivetrain. Well, it's not just applying power to the pinion and then hitting the ring gear, but it, it can be conversely. It can be the tire slowing down drastically on a whoop face and the, and the, the pinion still, the, yeah, the pinion still trying to spin the ring gear that just slowed down drastically. So I, you know, I may have significant success due to the fact that I couldn't run in four wheel drive in the desert. And that's why I think you see these guys like, um, tube works and, the Gomez brothers running these one-way clutches in the diff in the hub so that they are, yeah, big money. Derek's doing the dollars fingers yeah. rubbed together um, be, because you're trying to eliminate that shock load coming back through the system. So it's not only just when you apply power, but it's when the terrain is drastically slowing down your ring gear and your pinion right. is still slamming into it, you know, well, which and, and a lot of that is working. We're not Bryce Menzies, right? Like we're not that caliber of driver that like if you watch these big trophy trucks and these all-wheel drive ones now going through the desert, yes, they have the ratcheting front diffs, but if you listen to them, they're like stabbing the throttle on and off as they're going through the whoops. Well, I don't have that kind of throttle response, so I'm like lucky every third whoop to catch the throttle and it's like yeah, you're in a nine to one compression ls like right clear, so so clear and i weigh a ton so clearly i broke the ring and pin in the de in the desert this year in four-wheel drive because like well fuck you know what i mean and and last year i didn't break it because last year with the toyota 47 motor i had at koh it didn't make enough horsepower to be able to run four-wheel drive I had to run the thing in two-wheel drive because I couldn't go over 30 miles an hour in four high. Yeah. You know, it didn't work. So I, I think there's definitely a strategy there. And I think this year I absolutely will not run the desert in four-wheel drive. Um, having done both last year, I will tell you that I had way more car control with four-wheel drive. Uh, my tires were way happier in four-wheel drive because I finished the desert basically the second half of the desert lap and two-wheel drive and my rear tires were absolutely smoked it yeah. looked like i had been out whipping donuts all day like it yeah. was no brutal. i don't i don't disagree like you know after both hammers runs um the back tires were 
gone, hundred uh, percent gone, and the fronts look pretty good, right? Because you're spending, you know, hundred and twenty of the hundred and thirty-five mile race in in two-wheel drive in the desert, just roaching the back tires off the yeah. car. One big burnout. It's a hundred yeah, mile one burnout. Big, one big burnout. You know, a seven-hour burnout. You know, or whatever. Um, yeah. Through gravel, but it, you know, it has changed my my kind of philosophy. Your your problem. Uh, what I've seen the big boys do with all their money and their budget, like, you know, it's not a secret. I'm I'm not, you know, a top of the box kind of guy or whatever, trying to hide every last little advantage. But because there's no selectable hubs, because of all that stuff, like my plan is to run a mechanical in the front, a Yukon Grizzly, leave the car in two wheel drive. And therefore I have all the steering feedback and I've got all the responsiveness in the car, but I've, I'm just going to run the desert like a two wheel drive race car and yeah derek's right like anytime the car's in four-wheel drive like it pulls better i mean obviously you look at trophy trucks now they're they're the winning trucks are all four-wheel drive but when we're talking about like a hammer style race like you have to get there first my budget doesn't you know i don't have the parts that that might survive that kind of beating for seven or nine hours so right and the difference two wheel drive and getting my steering back might might be a better play for me yeah the the difference when i so you know you go out and i i think i broke this year somewhere after cougar buttes on the way back in and and it was crazy is when it actually broke and started making noise i was in like a flat spot i wasn't like beating it through the desert and it started making noise i was like cruising and and so what i found though is that like once i was in two wheel drive it was so much more work to keep the car from killing me. Yes. In four-wheel drive, you're just like almost one hand on the wheel, just Sunday driving, even though you're wide open. And in two-wheel drive, you're sawing the wheel left and right because the car is trying to actively kill you for two yeah. and a half it's trying hours. To yeah, the, yeah, it's trying to pass itself. And, yeah, and the back of the car is like, trying to pass me the whole time. You, you talk to guys that have, have seriously gone fast, which I would say I seriously have not gone fast. No, and, not at all. You me, talk me, about like, me either. I'm not just talking shit. Yeah, four wheel four wheel drive being a safety thing because if you get in a ass up situation and your front tires are the only thing near the ground, if they can pull the car ahead of itself and back down, like it might keep you from cartwheeling end over end, you know, getting onto your front bumper. So I don't disagree with any of that. I just don't know that that I have the budget and the parts. To, to run sustained and four wheel drive. And, and you're right. You work so much harder because the ass ends trying to pass the front end the whole time. And you're just counter steering like a mofo. I mean, you just feel like Ken block and Jim Connor, you know, you're just trying to keep the car moving forward and you know, it's less efficient, you know, you're heavier in the throttle, but you need a ring and pinion when you get to the rocks. And if you don't, <laughs> I have the answer. I have the, I have the king of the hammers winning answer for you. You guys are both Atlas, right? Okay, let's let's go off there for this. Yeah. So so he has an Atlas. I have a two hundred five with a ORD range box in front of it. Okay. So click the rear out and run it in front wheel drive. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a terrible idea. No, I know. And if the, if the front if the new front drive shaft doesn't vibrate like the old one, then yeah, maybe that's an option for me. But. Could you imagine? You think the rear tire spinning is hard to keep the car straight? Yeah, right. Yeah. Five hundred at all. Five hundred horsepower to the front wheels. Just to the front wheels. Up. 
yeah, yeah, through like a spool or something. Like, good torque. God. You can't have torque steering a spool, right? No, 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 just, no. It just goes. goes. Yeah. yeah, you just have no steering. Yeah, yeah you just have yeah. nothing. Yeah, no, I and that and that's the truth. So, so when the car got rebuilt this year, um, I have all the suspension in the front and not nearly enough in the back, and so I spent a lot of time with the ass of the car, just not on the ground, and 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 so having four wheel drive definitely allowed me to go push a whole lot harder and obviously until I couldn't like it was going great until it wasn't same yep. race recap everyone gives yep um, so I guess it's that's the strategy this year of, of run it in two-wheel drive so I don't break the front end and just go a little bit slower I mean that's a good point and like I didn't think about it till Kevin was just explaining it the like think of you know you guys are both saying you smoke your rear tires so obviously you know even say there's 50 percent less wheel slip when you're in four wheel drive, obviously you can't actually know that number, but all of the times that you're unloading and loading the rear and the rear spinning, if you can take all of that shock on both sides of the gear off on the front, maybe you have to drive a little bit slower in the desert, but you guys know more than anyone. What you guys are doing is a game of attrition. So yep. if you can keep sure, if you have to run slower in the desert, but you keep the car together and you cross the finish line, like, yeah, save the, save the front axle for, you know, when you need it. Um, I know that's easy to say because as soon as I got into a race car in a race situation, I'd be like, "I will, I will come off of this when we cross the finish line." Yeah, we'll well, it's, it's <laughs> like they, you know they they tell you in the drivers' meeting as soon as you guys put a helmet on, you just turn stupid, you know. And, yeah. and there's a, you know, for sure that's a thing, but you know, once that initial adrenaline wears off, you you do need to switch mindsets and and figure out like, okay, where's where's the mechanical sympathy here? And yeah. Um, well, and, yeah. and it's no different than like when a 16 year old starts driving, right? Like you don't, you don't, you don't know the color of the shirt of the dude that was walking on the sidewalk that you just drove by. But once you've been driving for a few years and you have that confidence, you start seeing everything around you and driving a race car is no different. Um, you know, and, and I didn't necessarily, I caught on to it recently and then uh, my wife has a stock class car and she just started racing this, this summer. And um, so her very first race when she was getting ready and going around the track, I was asking her, you know, did you see this? Did you see that? She's like, I didn't see anything other than what was in front of me. Yep. And then two or three races later, after she had some seat time, she's telling me what she saw. She's telling me about the fire extinguisher that was on the third turn. You know what I mean? And so that's that, that seat time and getting comfortable in your car that like everyone says new car blues. It's no, you just don't, you're, you're wet baby new to driving that car. And like the more confident you get in it, the more information you can take in. And, and that helps keep the car alive because now I saw that rock. I saw that whoop. I saw the G out before I got there. Like you start taking in all that information and it helps keep the car alive. Um, and we are way off topic since this was about ring opinions and, and differentials, by the way. I don't we've, think so. we've, we've been talking about this. I think it's good. Yeah, all right. Is there anything else you got, Derek, on your outline? Um, so you've I think the biggest thing was just like uh we were talking about fabricated. So so you're running the mega high nines, which are still a true nine-inch diameter gear. And and so that's I guess we can back up. Um when we talk about a nine inch Ford or, or a mega high nine or a Dana 60 or a 14 bolt, the, the perceived strength or the engineered strength in those comes from the diameter of the ring gear. Um, 14 bolt is 10 and a half 
uh, a Sterling, which is what Ford's 250s have is 10 and a half. Um, so putting that in perspective, your one ton trucks are typically a 10 and a half inch rear ring gear, which is where a lot of the load is. And then in the fronts, I want to say a Dana 60 is nine and three quarter. The Super 60 in the big trucks is going to be 10 inch now. So Kevin's running what used to be the only high pinion nine inch carrier on the market, which is a nine, a true nine. So it's a nine inch diameter ring gear. And then now we have gear works and tube works. And I don't know if there's any others, but they're doing that same concept of a, it's based off of a Ford original Ford nine inch architecture, but it's using a 10 inch ring gear um, with a lot of custom whiz bang stuff into it. But so that strength or that perceived strength comes from the diameter of the ring gear. So you're running a nine, you're going to give that a go, see if you can make it work. If it's not a weak point, you'll run it. If it is, Gear works here. You come. Yeah, I, I look at it as a tiered system, right? So high nine, mega high nine is probably the lowest tier. That's not tier. not by a whole lot price wise. No, but that's your that's your you know when you want to go from a low to a high nine, right? It's, it's that that's probably the lowest price point to do it. Then you've got right. gear works, and then at the top of the food chain, you've got tube works. Right. And I'm going to work my way up that system until I don't break something because, right. you know, like I talked to TubeWorks at the expo a year ago and I was like, so like they didn't have any prices out. Right. Which is like red flag number one. Exactly. And I'm like, right. I'm like, exactly. I know the answer to the question of like, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. But like, what is this cost? What is a nine inch third member assembled, ready to put in my car cost? And he goes, Ten, oh, an inch. 10 inch gear, custom race, billet. Yeah, holiday. I billet, drop out, all that, like Gucci. Grand. Uh, he goes, well, he goes, oh, it's only $1,000 more than you're spending now. And I go, uh, I would actually argue that. So, like, I have <laughs> low nine, you know, cast steel, like, and my, you know, my buddy Kevin, another Kevin, sets it up in his garage, his two-car condo garage. And I was like, so... I spend like 1200 bucks. So you're telling me your tube works diff is $2,200. And he goes, sold. Uh, no. And he's like, yeah. he's like, no, I mean, it's like seven grand plus per, per diff, you know, depending on that's just a spool, like a spool nine inch or whatever you want to call it. 10, whatever was like seven grand. And then it just goes up from there. If you're going to start adding like a selectable diff or mechanical or whatever. And so I was like, yeah, in it, now it's $9,500. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, you're, you know, and somebody, so the, the car that won my class at hammers last year, took the overall in the EMC race, Dan Fresh's uh, bomber chassis had two works front and rear. I happened to through connection, see the invoice for those differentials, two differentials that were in the winning car of 4,800 EMC. Uh, it was twenty thousand dollars, eight hundred change. That's it. So, so to put that in perspective, if and and I know this because I just recently talked to him. So, if you do the gear works, which is out of Vegas, by all accounts, a great product. Desert guys run it. It's not like now they may not be as Gucci as Tube Works, but I think that strength and and design is there. Um, for the rear of my wife's car. So it ran their proprietary gear to run in a rear application as a high pinion um, with a spool, 35 spline was right around 3,700 bucks. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's not bad. Right. So, so, so if you compare it, yeah. that would be and it, now granted that is a that's a steel housing or a steel dropout that's not aluminum that's not gucci billet but right. still like there's you know so you can get into that's why I money like, i'm gonna approach it in a tiered system like that so if i if i i have these that came with these axles if i blow these up in an unrealistic time frame then i'll i'll probably call Gearworks and i'll i'll do that and if if I happen to blow that up, then I, I guess I'll probably take a year off and work a lot of overtime and call tube works. But I think honestly, at my horsepower level, with my car being lighter weight on a 37 inch tire, I have a feeling if I need to go to GearWorks level, right. I'll be fine. Right. And and just because we were talking about it, I did the same research on a Mega High Nine with the same setup. It's about a $400 spread to go from Mega High Nine to uh, Gearworks, and and gotcha. then obviously a true high nine, which would be totally fine for a low horsepower trail car, would be, you know, even cheaper than that. So, right. you know, you're looking at you you know you're, and I even this is three thousand at that point. Yeah, this isn't to to shit on uh, the high nine company because no, not at all. You know, I don't have a sponsorship with any of those, but um. I called them when I got these and just said, Hey, what do I own? What did I just buy? Like, what do I do with these things? And I said, I've, I've heard certain problems and shortcomings and this and that. And he said, because it's a proprietary gear set, we had to find a gear manufacturer that would even make this for us. He said, we had some failures and some early ones and we've switched manufacturers of that gear set. And ever since we've done that, we've had a lot better success. Um, he said, guys have tried things like that pinion support bushing that a nine inch is, or pinion support bearing, that third support out on the snout that a nine inch is known for. Uh, we've tried different things. We've tried solid bushings, whatever. We've had better luck with just a roller bearing. They actually, like, this is getting in the weeds, but they talk about taking the cage out of the bearing and adding extra rollers. And <laughs> anyway, but I think their product is good. And if I wasn't making, 500 horsepower and trying to put it on the floor and survive a nine hour, you know, quote, hardest single day race in the world. I, I wouldn't even think twice about it. Like if this was a high nine going in my forerunner, like send right. it, like not even a question. So this is just, you know, Derek and I are talking about spending 10 or 15 grand to get to a one day race and just trying to have the best possible outcome. Yeah. The, the only thing, the only thing more retarded than Lee Springs is race car drivers. That makes sense. And what was? Oh no, we probably shouldn't say the other thing that was the only thing dumber than Leaf Springs is. Was it the shocks? No, I'll text you. I don't. Okay, I, don't I forget. I don't want to blow it up on air. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no. So, so I guess in that, so I'll send, it, regards, I'll send it to the group. How's that? All right. All right. So since we're talking about fabricated axles, and we'll try and wrap this up since we're right at we're over two hours at this point. Um, if you're in that realm and you're like, I don't want, and, and to be clear, I've built a rig on junkyard axles. I don't think I will ever build another rig for myself using junkyard axles. I think the downside or the trade-off in price to get a, a stock limitation on a cast steel housing or forward, like whatever you want to call it, and those strength limitations with the amount of added weight I'll never do it again. That makes sense. So with that said, that means I'm only going to do fabricated housings. 
I think in what I've looked at for the money, it's really tough to beat the trail gear housing. Um, rough stuff's right there. Um, spider tracks, if you get their lower, like lower level, again, is real close. Um, but you what know, do you think, I, Trevor? Do you agree? Is that I, fair? That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not to shit on Trevor, tell him we pay too much money because he does have spider tracks, right? That's no, no, no. That was, that was the the message I, I just sent you guys. Oh, yeah. No, I'll say it. Um, no, I was I, I was waiting. I was watching Trevor open his phone, read the message, oh, okay. and then watch his facial reaction. I'll glad I'll gladly say it. I, no, don't I'm say gonna, it. Don't say it. Let's let's I'm be sure. listeners. Quote on right. Kevin Jones. <laughs> hey, if you want to know what we're talking about, feel free to shoot me a DM and I will gladly you tell you the yep. one thing in the world that is 100% dumber than, dumber leaf, springs. than leaf springs. Um, um, so I am rough... not running spider tracks. I am on a factory Ford housing. Hell oh, okay. So you've got the fabricated, like basically the Ford sheet metal type kind of yep. fabricated housing. A big yeah. backbone truss on it. And then all of the money is literally in the third. Yeah. Okay. Hey, that's that's good money spent because yeah. you probably got that Ford housing cheap. $178. It's way cheaper than anything else. So, so in the fabricated world, um, spider tracks, rough stuff, trail gear, the tube works, right? Tube works being the most expensive, followed by spider tracks, and then trail gear and rough stuff are somewhere kind of kind of mixed in there in price. Um, with trail gear and rough stuff, you're going to get DOM tubes. It's not going to be chromo. Spider tracks has a chromo option. Tube Works is just going to be the Gucciest of it all. Um, there's a company called SNS. Uh, I don't know that he really has a website. He's on Facebook. I saw a buddy of mine's running his stuff. He does fabricated outers, uh, fabricated inners, really good stuff. Um, he's kind of got a little bit of a, a spatter issue, kind of like Kevin does with some of his welding, uh, I think, in a production level. And then, you know, if you're a motivated go-getter, um, there's a couple of places online where you can actually buy the file to run through either a laser or a, a CNC uh, plasma cutter, and you can build your own fabricated housing. Uh, the files cost, I don't know, 20 bucks. And if you're really just fired up, you can build your own housing. And, and then, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't disagree. Like I thought about it. The problem is the cost of the DOM for the axle tubes you could almost just go buy a house. You could buy a housing, hundred percent. Close, uh, close. It's, it's close. It's close. Uh, and then you know, if you just if you just like spending money for absolutely no reason, you can do a fabricated housing, and for about the same cost as Spider Tracks uh, entry level knuckles, what what are not chromo, which is basically what Kevin's putting on his race car now. Um, they would actually be cheaper, I think. Reed offers what they call the Super Kingpin, which is essentially the spacing and and design of a 05 Super Duty, but instead of uh, ball joints, it uses the super old school Kingpin, uh, Kingpin on the top and and bearing on the bottom from you know your early Ford axles. So that is something that I think. I think that is designed for the guy that is convinced that the kingpin is just the end all be all of steering knuckles. And uh, I don't think that the money justifies the strength you're getting out of it. But if you just have to have it, you have to have it. You know what I mean? 
Um, it uses a proprietary inner C, it uses a proprietary knuckle, and then it uses the old school Kingpin technology for your pivot points, and it uses everything else is based off of an 05 plus Super Duty. So your unit bearing, your brakes, uh, all that stuff. So it's kind of neat. It's kind of, you know, unique. Um, but I think for that kind of money, um, I think doing a fully fabricated spider tracks um, type outer like what Kevin's running would probably be money more better spent. So, and I think that's it. That, that covers our outline. I'm good Real with that. quick before we jump off here, just because of Kevin was talking about the ridiculous price of tube works. Uh, yes. Housings. Um, a couple. I, I don't want to get too deep into it here, but the the big benefit between like a cast housing and aluminum housing is weight. There is not. I don't. I think there's a huge misconception. Obviously, the professionals know this. It's like you know, 25 pounds of weight savings in your car can be huge, especially when you're talking 50 pounds for the front and rear. But yep. it's it's weight. The aluminum. Uh, the billet aluminum housing is not going to be any stronger than a equal cast steel housing. Uh, the, if you were to take like a a basic strange is strange makes all of the cast housing. So you're talking about dropout housings based on this nine inch high pinion type. Yeah, a nine inch a nine inch center yeah. section. A nine right. inch center section. The a, a, a billet housing. Your the strength addition going billet is going to be probably zero over cast steel the benefit is is you get if you look at the the, the housings next to each other or the the dropouts next to each other the aluminum will look a lot beefier and it's probably not any weaker than the steel housing because they're able to add all of that mass because of the obviously the weight savings of aluminum the other huge benefit that TubeWorks has and for what I am doing, it definitely doesn't matter for what you guys are doing. There could probably be an argument made is they actually flip the bearings on the carriers. So the taper runs the opposite direction. Oh and man, then, you just, you just added like an hour to this podcast. I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get too deep into it. So they flip the bearings and when they, we don't need to go into why that's stronger, but they flip the bearings <laughs> and they get rid of the side adjusters. So there's yep. no more side adjusters and they fully encapsulate that, which um, the big problem with side adjusters on anything is if you side load the fuck out of it, it will push the side adjuster threads right out. So there's the added strength there. So for, yeah, the thousand horsepower Lauren Healy's of the world, they probably would like to use something like that. I would have a hard time believing that a 500 horsepower LS and a 4,400 pound car is going to blow a side adjuster out of a, right. a, a true nine or a true high nine, or especially a gear works at that right, point. Right. Right. When I, I think the other, the other concession too, because I mean, all this information is none of it's, none of it's wrong or misled, but I think, I think the biggest thing is that if we can create something that someone's like, I want to build axles, I want to do this for my, my trail rig. The reality is, unless you're trying to run with your foot on the floor through the desert, that weight savings, uh, the unsprung weight savings probably isn't going to make a difference. I would actually argue that heavier axles in a rock crawler are better because yep. you got your weight low where you want it. That's, the only time whole, it's going to be a, yep. the only time it's going to be a problem is when you're down to, <laughs> yeah, 
the only time it's going to be a problem is when you're trying to trying to slow those axles down going through the desert, right? And so with that, we'll, folks, we'll see you next week. Yeah, yeah. and we're out. Unsprung weight topic. Ball <laughs> joints are better than kingpins if you yep. use them right. They're uh, more modern with more engineering than kingpins. We'll go with that. <laughs> four nine inch is the best axle ever made. Fuck one tons and. Uh, Kevin Jones is a retired race car driver. I think that's basically sums up. Mm-hmm. The, he's on hiatus. On hiatus. He's on hiatus. Yeah, like, like, yeah, like that show that like they were having some disagreements. They're just not putting it out yet. Nobody signed contracts. That's where Kevin's at. Yeah, he's working we're on in, contract. We're in uh, contract negotiations. For hey, I'm right my there with you. Driver status. All I do is work on somebody else's race car. I don't even actually drive a race car anymore. Kevin, question for the people in the back. On your yeah. sponsorship applications, do you put six foot? Six foot? Yeah, or do you put five nine still? No, I okay. <laughs> I, I completely leave personal uh, stats out of uh, personal body type stats out of my my. I think you should start doing that. I think you should height, weight, eye color, mm-hmm. hair color. Did it be like a boxing thing? Like you put reach, you know? Yeah, yeah. reach everything, all that yep. stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah just vertical, goes. vertical <laughs> leap or whatever. Like, yeah. I'm gonna lie and say I'm lighter, so I don't weigh the car down. We're good. Yeah. No, I, I don't, I don't argue that I'm, I'm a horse jockey, but you know, that's, that's not a bad build type for a race car driver. No, True. it's really like a horse jockey is a great build type because the best way to make your car faster is to make it lighter. Go on a fucking diet, and your car's fat lighter. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. yeah, the only the only race car thing I'm not good at is putting like a spare tire on the back of the car by myself. That, when I move up so to 40, when I move up to 4400 and I got to put a 40 inch tire on the back of the You're car, you're gonna leave myself, it and drive off. Yeah. The, uh, the so the difference between your guys's two cars is five, four inches of height, 45 pounds, and a. Wu Tang War Whistle. That's basically <laughs> <laughs> my car is like ten feet longer. Yeah. Uh, technically, my car runs and drives. True. Currently, True. you know. Yeah. All right. I so. won't keep you guys any longer because Kevin's obviously trying to work on his race car, and if we keep doing this, he's never going to make it to King of the Hammers. Uh, and then I don't know what D Mill does. I don't even know if Derek works. Nobody, nobody knows what Derek does. Yeah. He's a man. It's of, a big, he's a man it's a big mystery. mystery. No, I, uh, I wish I worked more than I did. I'm self-employed, so when I don't work, it means I don't have race car money. Ah, uh, this checks out. <laughs> Makes sense. All right, guys. Well, I enjoyed having you on. Uh, I'm going to stop this recording right after I say that the only thing more retarded than 